VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, August the 5th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams is producing this Come On With an edition of the show. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue is 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, one 590 voc which is 8626. So the normal routine for me, come in, get organized, open up some of the tabs that I'm going to use, you know, uh, VOCM News and Twitter, my email and the like. First email I saw today, I guess based on a comment I made the other day, is that this person declares summer's over. I guess because the regatta has come and gone. The sun and the temperatures would disagree, but the regatta, I think, was just a terrific event yesterday. Now, I know maybe it's a towny thing, and people who are across the different parts of the province might not give one hoot about the regatta. I get it. Now, of course, there's regattas, Placentia, Harbor Grace, there's one up in Labrador, and the 204th running here was historic for a variety of reasons. So 71 crews participated, 18 races, and into the two championship races. And Hydroflow, Hyflow high, high Drolic, the female winners, they won the Triple Crown. So they won a Placentia Harbor Grayson here in St. John's at Kitty Vitty. They won it in the time of 5.11.35, followed by Robotham Mackay Marshall, the Cal Group, Smith Stockley, the legendary Smith Stockley, and the Steers Insurance Ladies. And then on to the men's side, NTV took back-to-back victories with a time of 9.46.91. Capital Home Hardware was uh, second place in Newfoundland. Power, Fine Strokes Plaster and Painting Limited, and then Penny Kia finished up to round out the men's championship race. So congratulations, of course, to all involved. High Flow Drawlick, of course, repeating as champions as well. The historic pride. Now, it's the first time that all hands were able to go down to Kitty Bitty Lake and the concessions and the vendors and the fans and just people down there fooling around, getting a bite to eat and playing a few games. But for the first time, you know the story already, but it's never, it hasn't ceased to amaze me since I saw the time yesterday. And maybe I'm making too much of it, but so be it. So with Studio Verso and three other crews rowing at 10.50 yesterday morning, the long course. The women rowing the long course. And of course, it's the right thing to do. It just makes all the sense in the world that they'd be able to do exactly that. So Studio Verso came home in first place. But the time still blows me away. 10.28. That's a super fast time. Now, when you talk about records like 851, that's superhuman. Like, I don't even know how that's accomplished. But 1028 is fast enough to have been in the championship race last night. Or right on the verge of it. So they would have beat one of the men's crews in the championship race last night with their 1028. I just think it's remarkable. And talk about how close it would be and every stroke counts and the turn is so pivotal. One of the female crews that made it into the championship race qualified by seven one-hundredths of a second. Seven one-hundredths of a second was the difference between in the big race and out of the big race. So I think it's cool stuff. You want to talk about it? Let's do it. Okay, today, 1957, American Bandstand had its national debut on ABC TV. Now, Dick Clark had been hosting the show locally in Philadelphia since 1952. The show ran until 1989. And, of course, it made Clark one of the media moguls in the United States. Terrific career, obviously. It just went on with Soul Train, Top of the Pops over in Britain. So Clark was obviously huge. The person or the band that appeared most on American Bandstand? Freddie Boom Boom Cannon. 
American rock and roller, probably best known for some of the international hits he had. Uh, Way Down Yonder, New Orleans, Palisades Park, Tallahassee Lassie. Freddie Boom Boom Cannon was on American Bandstand 110 times. <laughs> so obviously, Dick Clark was a big fan. Okay, let's go. All right, so talking about the fashions of the day and the performers and the dancing that was featured on American Bandstand, the dance continues on the province's west coast regarding the pending sale and ownership takeover by the Diamond Group of the Stephenville Airport. There's still some doubt out there. You know, we had Carl Diamond on this program. He and his company, through their greater NL partnership, have committed and said they're absolutely proceeding. You know, the first order of business would be to uh, modernize the lighting systems on the runway. Okay. You know, the plans for a couple hundred million dollars of injection and to build these massive cargo drones. You know, if it comes to pass, it's going to be terrific, obviously, for that part of the province. Good stuff, and fingers crossed it happens. But there still seems to be some doubt lingering. Maybe the province, it'd be nice to have Minister Parsons back on. Last time we talked about wind, and we're going to talk about wind here now and again in a second. But the Stephenville Airport Authority and the folks working for the Airport Authority, they've done yeoman service to try to keep the airport alive. I mean, we know what's happened with passenger traffic and what have you in Stephenville. So everyone is holding their breath that this comes and happens. There is some questions about whether or not the fact that the Newfoundland government, Newfoundland Labrador government, has been backstopping the airport authority's line of credit to the tune of $900,000. When that gets paid off, that guarantee will go away. Minister Parsons says the provincial guarantee will then be terminated when they pay off the line of credit as they currently are at the Stephenville Airport uh, Corporation. So that means it won't be extended to the Diamond Group, and Mr. Diamond has said quite clearly that the injection of cash will not be any taxpayer dollars, will all be private capital. Okay, it's been a long time since the first splash that Mr. Diamond made with making the announcement. And then they went ahead and they finalized the deal. And, of course, Mayor Tom Rose has been on this program, Councillor Lenny Tiller, who had some concerns, whether it be about the fire hall and some additional monies flowing from the town of Stephenville to the Diamond Group and the Greater NL Partnership. So when this is going to come to a head is anybody's best guess. The company says it's working through the conditions of the sale as per the agreement. I thought that was finalized. Maybe not, because it's five weeks since they said, okay, it's full steam ahead and the deal has been struck. But if you're on the province's west coast, you'd like to talk about what you hear and see and your hopes for the airport and this particular proposal, we'd love to speak with you. Same thing if you're in and around Port-au-Port. And we're expecting an update from Environment Minister Bernie Davis this morning regarding the release of this proposal brought forward by World Energy GH2 for the wind project out in Port-au-Port, which will see 164 wind turbines installed and then a green hydrogen and ammonia plant closer to the port. There is a real split, we're told, in the communities, the surrounding communities, which is some 11 service districts, four municipalities. They put some of their leadership group into this committee to review and keep the residents informed. There were some 18 people on that committee. So whether or not you're a supporter or opposed to, we'd like to hear your perspective this morning. Now, in an effort to try to understand what the wind farms look like, feel like, Some of the members of that 18-person committee, they made the trek to the mainland to do exactly that. One of the key concerns has long been, well, I guess a few. Birds, and you know, the number one predator of a bird is a cat. 
but it's also the proximity to the buildings or resident residential areas and so the turbines can't be within a kilometer of any of those so that's one thing there will be what some people refer to as the eyesore of the wind farm okay then another one that's been brought forward repeatedly is noise pollution there's no question some of the wind farms in the early onset of wind power generation that we've seen in North America, they were quite loud. The swoosh, swoosh, swoosh was really something else. Now, don't take my word for it, because I will admit, I haven't been close enough to a new wind farm to know what it sounds like. I, I don't. But some of the members of that committee, when they went up to see what they could see in uh, Haydmond County, south of Hamilton, Ontario, they said that they didn't see the negative downside when they were up close to those turbines, whether it be about sound or otherwise. Now, that being said, uh, Mayor Sheila Cornick, she'd like to see, that's from Cape St. George, she'd like to see some delay today for a very detailed environmental study if the project is released from its assessment and approved. I'm also told, and I think this is right, I read through the government's website regarding this particular environmental assessment. I'm not sure that it addresses the entirety of the project. Maybe more in the neighborhood of a third of the project in this current environmental assessment. So I guess that's what's behind Mayor Cornick's assertion that we need a pause, we need a comprehensive, detailed environmental assessment before the project is released and potentially approved. Seems to stands to reason that John Risley and his group they've got the cash to proceed. So it's whether or not the province gives it the green light. And I suppose there has to be some consideration of what people in the region themselves think about the project. So, regardless if you're in one of the four municipalities, 11 service districts, you want to talk about the project as it stands or as proposed in Port of Port, we can take it on today. All right, speaking of energy. It's really remarkable just how numb so many people have become to the price, not only the cost of living issues and inflationary pressures and the price of groceries, which is just staggering, it's the price of gas and diesel and other fuels. So when I read the story this morning that overnight the PUB, based on recent commodity market developments, has decided to drop the price of gasoline by 9.9 cents. That's good, right? Of course it's good. But it's bizarre, maybe it's just in my own head, it's bizarre to feel some sort of relief to be paying in the $1.80s for gas per liter. It's still an extraordinarily high price for a liter of unleaded gasoline, so it's about $1.81 on the Avalon Peninsula. And of course it varies across the province, but it used to be there was a huge gap between what we were paying on the, in the metro region versus other parts of the province. That's come down a little bit, that gap. So I think the other prices say in Conagra Peninsula, $1.87. It used to be for sure 10 cents, every bit of 10 cents. So I've never heard any rationale from the PUB or otherwise about why that gap has come back, a, back to earth a little bit. Now, that's a good thing. I mean, who needs to see anyone else in the province pay more than they should for a price of gasoline? But down over oh, just about 10 cents. Other fuels remain the same price today as they were announced a couple of days back. But yeah, wow, what a relief, $1.80 odd. Uh, speaking of driving, so the firefighters who are working on several fires across the province, including the one uh, blocking off the Beta Spare Highway, the hope was to have the highway open Friday morning, Saturday morning, Sunday morning. The Beta Spare Highway will remain closed today. So even for the Saturday, Sunday, hopes to have it open in the morning. You know, some of the 
advice being given is to try to schedule your need to get out based on what they're hoping to have the highway open tomorrow morning and Sunday morning, whether it be for uh, medical appointments and what have you and get in touch with Central Health if you are down at the Conagra Peninsula and it's the one road in, one road out, and to be blocked off for the vast majority of time since the fire started, I'm sure is quite frustrating and concerning for folks in the region, but the highway will remain closed today. Okay. We hear from many different individuals and organizations, municipal leaders, about what's happening in their community regarding health care and diversions from emergency rooms and all the rest of it. Lack of family doctor, you know the story. The problem says that they are now close to securing a full-time doctor for Bonavista. Okay, that's good news, and hopefully that happens. But here's some of the larger questions, right? It's easy enough to look at the numbers and say, well, there's more nurses, more doctors practicing in the province than ever, ever before. But that doesn't really paint a particularly clear picture of what's happening. Here's some of the questions. Let's just say, go back to 2019. How many doctors, in particular, and of course we can talk about every discipline inside healthcare, how many doctors have left the province? And why did they leave? How many doctors retired? And then consequently, how many have been hired? So where are we in the net gain or loss of the number of doctors? Further to that, it'd be nice to know how many of the doctors in the province are seeing a full suite of patients and whether or not they're practicing in full in one of their specialties or how many are doing research and instruction at one's med school and what have you because it's one thing to have the X number of doctors and more than ever before, but are they all practicing part-time, full-time, seeing patients or not? So I get it. It's easy enough to put out the big number, but the big number doesn't tell the entirety of the story. So... How many have left since 19? Why did they leave? How many retired? How many have been hired? How many are practicing in full? Research instructors, whatever the case may be. Because we need to know a little bit more about it so that we can dig in and have more of a comprehensive understanding, take, and conversation about it. You want to take it on this morning? You know what to do. Okay. Interesting ruling, and I think a welcomed ruling, at the Supreme Court of Canada yesterday when they declined to hear an appeal that would allow the attorney who's charged with sexual interference, four counts of sexual assault, one count of sexual interference, involving the alleged victim at the age of 12. So the lawyer in question put forward a petition, a plea to the courts to keep his name out of it, and only be, to be known in court documents as R.R., with the Supreme Court ruling yesterday, we now know that the lawyer in question, his name is Robert Regular. He's been practicing on the Avalon Peninsula for some three decades. Okay. This is, this is the right thing. You know, protect, protection for the victim, the person who comes forward with, forward with allegations of these types of crimes, we have to protect them. I would imagine across the legal community, there was some consternation about the fact that the person who had the, uh, their identity protected, their anonymity was part of their petition to the courts. You know, even if RR was not going to end up being the person's actual initials, how many lawyers have had some people in and around their firm, in and around their community, in and around their circle of friends, thinking, I wonder, is it that guy? You know, that's a huge problem. Absolutely, it's a problem. So now that that's happened, there was, look, put it this way, there were a couple of people in my social circle that were frustrated about this. One of them is a lawyer, other is a professional, but not a lawyer, and people couldn't help themselves. They were taking guesses as who it might be. That's a problem. 
that's a massive problem. And there was one lawyer's name that I heard bandied about several times. And it turns out it's, it's absolutely not that person. So this ruling has been made. And if you want to discuss those types of issues inside the courts or anything inside criminal justice, we'll do it today. Speaking of that, this is where people are galled and blood is boiled. We've been talking a lot about the fact that the Roman Catholic Archdiocese has to sell off a bunch of properties. The first round was some 43, now another 70 in play. You know, we spoke with a gentleman, Aaron O'Brien, I think was his name, uh, up in Cape Royal. They're asking developers to stay away while they try to raise the funds to buy their church. So that's all, all, of course, because of the abuse at Mount Cashel. A story I read by Ryan Cook over at the CBC this morning. It's good work, Ryan. Talking about at least a couple of them who were charged, convicted, one confessed, one had some of these charges overturned by the Supreme Court of Canada based on inconsistencies in uh, witness testimony, even though we're talking about children who are traumatized. So what happened? Just like it's happened so many times in different parishes, the priests in that case were just moved around, shuffled off to the next unsuspecting parish. In this case, at least two of those Christian brothers, they got convicted here, ended up in British Columbia, and allegedly did it again. One of them confessed to police in 1975, and then apparently it's alleged that he did the exact same thing in 1981 in British Columbia. I mean, it's the true disgrace of it all. It's bad enough with the evil perpetrated on the victims. Young boys and girls sexually assaulted, victimized, brutalized by people of the faith. And then what happens? They just end up somewhere else. And of course, if they had the wherewithal and the want to commit those types of heinous crimes, they're going to do it again, quite likely. And they did it. I just got shuffled out to BC. Just madness. Anyway, had an interesting conversation on the show yesterday with a representative of Fair B&B, a different type of rental platform, as opposed to what we're all familiar with, the Airbnb. It was an interesting conversation and an interesting co-op uh, concept. The rental crunch issue, and this is not to alleviate any of the pressures here because there's nothing we can do to alleviate the pressure because the vacancy rate, the price of rent, the hike in interest rates, the inflation, all of it is contributing to a rental crunch across the country. When they talk about affordable housing, and they use this metric, it's 30% of your net income. So in this province or in this region, in and around town, that means it's about $650. You're not getting much in the way of a spot a healthy, clean, safe spot for six fifty. You're simply not. If you extend that to other parts of the country, if you're in Vancouver to equal that thirty percent of net income, you have to earn at least one hundred fifty thousand dollars. In Toronto, at least one hundred thirty-five thousand dollars. Average rent in Vancouver. Just get this: average rent for two-bedroom apartment in Vancouver, three thousand five hundred and ninety-seven dollars. What? How do people, how does that happen? How do people make ends meet? So with the rising interest rates, investment firms may be getting in the competition to buy these single family dwellings. The mortgage stress test, which has to be revisited by the banks. If people are able to get into a rental and pay their bills on time, that may in some cases be double, triple what it would cost for a mortgage over the course of 25 year amortization. There's something patently wrong there. It's not making a lot of sense. We're making a bad situation worse. And I think something can and should be done on that front. But can you imagine average price of a two-bedroom rental, $3,500? You get a pretty nice, uh, pretty nice shack on a mortgage for that kind of money. Anyway, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. 
follow us there. Our email address is openlineofvocm.com. How are we doing on the phone there, Dave? Oh, so just saw a picture and a tweet from Team NL. The last wave of athletes making their way through St. John's International Airport this morning, heading to Niagara for the Canada Summer Games. So we wish them safe travels and good luck for sure. All right, just got a tune on the go before we come back and speak with you. All right, let me see. Uh, pop this up here. So it's today, 1966, that the Beatles released their album Revolver. That was in the United Kingdom. Released three days later in the United States. It was the seventh studio album by the Beatles. So it was just, it was their last studio album before they retired as live performers. You know, it came on the heels of the 65 release of Rubber Soul, considered one of the greatest albums of all time. In my mind, it certainly is. And other rock and roll magazines. So there's lots of cool tunes on Revolver, but I've gone with this one because I got to get you into my life. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's get her going on the top of the board. Line number one, Sean, you're on the air. Thanks very much, Patty. Uh, I've got a number of things I could talk about today, but the, no- the one that I, I just wanted to talk around is uh, wind power. Okay. And uh, just to frame up who I am, I, I've, my company's put up the wind turbines in Ramia for Nalcor, and I've put up a number of wind monitoring towers for some of the big players in Canada who were trying to get here. Um, I find it very disheartening for Andrew Parsons to get on and say, for 15 years now, We've been blocking wind power, and now all of a sudden, I don't know if he stuck his head out the window and realized uh, that we had wind here, and all of a sudden now there's going to be an explosion of giving away uh, government or giving uh, making access to government land for this. The wind, we have the lowest penetration of wind power in Canada, and this has gone on for years and years and years. We've also heard government people who are obviously uninformed you know our wind is too high it's inconsistent and all this foolishness about this and then finally you know finally at the tail end of the rest of canada we're now going to start to consider this and to me this is this is like disturbing how long this has gone on and i've been involved with a number of the big players i've been a member of can we canada and gone to the conferences talked to the guys and the short is that everybody's told me is that they have been blocked here mainly by, I think it is now core or Newfoundland Hydro, whatever uh, branch of that entity does this, that they just couldn't get anywhere with them. And I think this is, Patty, more of the uh, trying to prop up muskrat, you know, trying to make uh, the case for muskrat as, as good as possible, and just simply blocking these people who work all over the world, putting up wind turbines, coming here, wanting to invest their own money here to do this, and they've just been... Uh, uh, you know, bucked or, or prevented from doing it. So what's disheartening about doing away with that piece of legislation? It was either Bill 60 or 61. I can't remember which one was which. One was about keeping the PUB out of Muskrat Falls. The other one was about wind and alternate sorts of energy. So what's disheartening about changing and getting rid of that legislation to now allow wind proposals? Well, it's not, I, I probably not disheartening. I just find it incredible that it has taken somebody here to wake up and get on the bus that the rest of Canada has got on for, for so long. And, you know, it's just not enough just to ha- have this uh, gone on and on. Now, I don't know what you can do about it. You know, yes, we can say, well, finally, right, that this is done. But, you know, I'm, I'm uh, just on another note of uh, where we are in Canada. The majority of the rest of the Canada, I haven't checked every province, they have what they call off-peak demand. Now, we have, you know, a whole department in Newfoundland Power uh, repeating the four things. I think it's light bulbs, windows, uh, what else? They got insulation, and uh, now, finally, they're going to get subsidies for heat pumps. Um, But we don't have off-peak demand. 
Off-peak demand would solve a huge problem. Off-peak demand is simply you get a lower rate at night to do your laundry and other things that consume power so we can flatten the peak demand curve. And we don't do that. I mean, that's another thing that's 15 years coming. And why don't we? Why don't we do it? It just doesn't make sense, right? Yeah, and of course that's you know I mean, we see that in some jurisdictions, say for instance in California, and our peak demand season is the winter, unlike many other parts of the North America where the peak demand is actually in the summer, air conditioning right. units and otherwise. But, uh, but I'm talking daily peak. Demand. No, I, I understand. But aren't those jurisdictions doing it because of the pressure on the grid versus hoping to try to save the residents some money? Isn't that the thought behind those peak demand alter uh, alter Operations? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So why don't we have it? You know, I know it's just a simple thing to do. I mean, we're t- uh, there was a justification from Muskrat that we were going to have an increase in power. We were going to need power. All- that never happened. It's nope. still flatlined. And to save people, save people money, and to lessen the demand on the grid, simply put in off-peak demand. And I don't know what that would account to, even if it's fifteen percent. It would. Uh, it would uh, help the problem tremendously. Sure. I don't think that's as much as that in other places, notably California, but there's lots of places that do it does exactly that, including Texas. Of course, that's a deregulated, weird old spot Texas is regarding. They're not even on the national grid. Uh, just a couple of things. So you say, and this is absolutely true, is that there was talk about the wind blows too hard and it's not always blowing and storage is not what it needs to be for wind to be reliable enough. Weren't some of those comments offered when people were proposing wind as opposed to muskrat when of course with no connectivity to the mainland versus the maritime link engineers would tell me repeatedly we could only really have about 10 percent of energy requirements coming from wind without being connected to the mainland so isn't that where those some of those conversations happened like 10 12 years ago versus poo-pooing wind energy since i'm not exactly sure what you're getting at but i mean to me any form of energy that would reduce the peak demand is a good thing. It's the same thing as electric cars. You know, we're being led to believe electric cars are going to be the epitome of savings. And they're, and they're not. But fine, uh, you know, don't poo-poo it. I mean, if we can uh, get 15% of the cars off the road and, uh, and, um, and save some, uh, what do you call it, carbon, uh, that's a great thing. But to me, we have completely underdeveloped uh, in reference to, I think, any reference, that we haven't, ex- we haven't exploited wind power. Now, all of a sudden on the West Coast, uh, thankfully, I guess, that there's a group out there now, they're looking to put up quite a number of wind turbines, and I don't know how that happened, but maybe that's what got through to the government and somebody finally explained it to them. Um, and now they're doing that. But, I mean, this isn't going to be the global savings, but it is a, a, a part of the whole picture. And nor is it going to be a big economic boon to the province either. I mean, there's some jobs in the upfront installation, yep. but when it comes to ongoing operations, I don't know how many jobs would be involved in a 164 wind turbine farm. I really don't know. Uh, one last well, comment, one last question, then you can say whatever you like. Yep. You say that some of this is in an effort to make muskrat falls more palpable or make it look better. How, what, what do you mean by that? Oh, I, ju- I just think uh, this was prior to and for 15 years that I, I just think that the Newfoundland, it's my opinion, and I, I think it's a common opinion, is the Newfoundland government did, any, did everything possible to try to make it look like we needed Muskrat Falls when we didn't, and we still don't. There is no justification based on the demand curves and the amount of electricity, kilowatt hours, or anything else that says we have no industry here. <laughs> and, we're, and, and we're further to that. We're increasingly, as per 
um, you know, NF Power's uh, electric uh, electric um, pro- program they got. I mean, everybody's installing light bulbs, further insulating their houses, putting in uh, heat pumps, and fixing their places up. So, you know, the demand curve is flat. Ever it is. since Muskrat Fall started, and a fellow of mine, uh, Vince Carey, he did the whole paper on it that told him that told him that at the public utilities hearings prior to, and he was exactly right. We don't need it. You know, so uh, I just don't get it. The other thing is with wind power, I know they're looking at hydrogen on the West Coast, but there's a whole lot of other types of uh, wind storage power. We, you know, people are um, focusing on batteries, which is, a, you know, one of, the, one of the ways to do it. But there's other things out there that are well known in Europe, things like vanadium redox, which is a totally different and new technology to use. That's much more uh, chemically and uh, storage efficient than just plain old batteries, right? So there's other technologies out there that are being explored in the world. But the short is, Patty, we had people, and I know them personally, who were willing to come to Newfoundland way back, 10 years ago, when I put up the 2009, I put up the turbines in Rania. They were willing to come here, and they just said, you know what, it's too much of a hassle. Go somewhere else. And, and it's just like developing in St. John's or whatever. These international people, they're not waiting around to be, you know, stifled and stymied and having to fill out red tape. They just take the money and go somewhere else. Sure, of course, like they all would. Uh, yeah. the, the province says that they've got a lot of people knocking on the door regarding the opportunities for, uh, in wind. I don't know. Uh, also, when you talk about storage, now storage capacity, batteries and otherwise, is always going to improve like everything else in the innovative world. But what's the implication of this massive salt deposit on the West Coast? Some two to five billion tons of salt owned by a Newfoundland uh, Labrador company called Atlas Salt. How does that play into storage i i really don't know okay okay <laughs> i really don't know because people tell me a bit about it i'm trying to learn more about the potential whether it be for the yeah. salt to be extracted and or the potential to store energy in these massive salt domes as people refer to so it's still something i'm trying to figure out i yeah. just thought you might know and, and, and no i don't something interesting maybe to read up on but the other thing is with batteries too patty uh, you know, a lot of people are talking about batteries, like even in cars and stuff. Uh, this is another topic, but, you know, battery, to some degree, batteries are batteries. I, I've worked in the big battery industry for a number of years, you know, batteries that weigh three and 400 pounds um, for standby power systems and whatnot. The battery technology passed lithium polymer on a commercial, a viable commercial basis hasn't progressed much past that. Uh, the thing that we also don't talk about in electric cars, and, and it seems to be just completely ignored, is where are all these batteries going? Uh, in another weird part of my, my career, I'm a, a certified fire and explosion investigator. And when you go to an accident or when you have to retrieve equipment out of these cars, you've got to really know what you're doing. And, of course, the fire departments are trained now in these. Like, it's a massive energy source in these cars. And nobody's really talking about, like, where do all these batteries go? You know? And somebody was on the other day saying how much carbon footprint it is to create the cars, an uh, electric car, as opposed to a gasoline car. And they said the electric car was actually more because of the batteries and everything. Now, when you actually get to use them, it's less. Yeah, that's right. A 10-year cycle, what I've read, and of course you can read whoever's yep. opinion biased or otherwise, the 10-year life cycle from the beginning to the end of 
designing, engineering, manufacturing, selling, driving, 10 years of internal combustion engine, and this includes price points and everything, uh, and an electric vehicle. The electric vehicle will be less in the neighborhood of uh, emissions and far less in the neighborhood of price. Even though the initial price point is higher than an ICE, I get that, even when you factor in some government rebates and subsidies, but the life cycle for emissions and price, that's what makes it attractive to me, to be honest, and I think the hybrid is going to rule the roost. I don't think uh, full-on, complete 100% electric vehicles are going to be all the rage. I think the hybrid will win out, especially in provinces like this with long-range travel for many people, certainly outside the metro region. So that's the information I have on that front. But when you talk about explosiveness and flammability and the uh, lithium-ion batteries, does that world change with the development of the solid-state battery? Volkswagen, BMW, Toyota say they're going to be able to offer to their customers as early as 2024, which my understanding and what I've read about it, it does a lot more when we talk about uh, reliability, flammability, explosiveness, range. So does that change your concerns when the solid state becomes the the go-to as opposed to the lithium ion? Yeah, and and obviously we're progressing in various technologies. Uh, There's another graphite technology that they're using now that seems to, you know, obviously we went from lead lead acid and alkaline, and then we went to lithium, lithium polymer. So yes, they are developing this all along the way, and uh, I don't doubt that these new technologies are going to become more safer, or they're going to be able to encapsulate them in a a safer way. Mm -hmm. But the thing that I don't hear talked about is again where are all these batteries going uh, the in a stockpile in a, a junkyard but more importantly like what is the true life of these batteries because the technology in these can't be any different than your cell phone it's they're lithium polymer and your cell phone battery like mine uh, it used to last three years but now that they've gone over to the two-year contract it seems like it's only surprisingly going to only last two years but so you know, but, and like I said, I've worked in the big battery business. I've worked in battery businesses where they had these advanced batteries, glass mat and GCM and other things. And they've gone back to lead acid because you can maintain lead acid. You can't maintain a, a fixed cell. It's very difficult to do. But and that's in the big, the big plants that are, you know, huge amounts of standby sure. power. But the thing is, too, is, and I don't know where it goes, but, Patty, I wouldn't buy a five-year-old uh, all-electric car. I'm, I'm going to get a hybrid next time out. I'm pretty sure, even if it's just about cost savings. Cost to operate is very clearly a saving to the customer. Yeah. Uh, I know the technology will change, and if we're talking about the advancement of my cell phone technology and electric vehicles, that gives me hope that the electric vehicle yeah. will be hybrid. Sure. Uh, or unless, other, like other people, have you just buy your small Chev, I think it's got the, one of the cheapest ones out there. The Volt, you know, yeah. If yeah, if you're going to just go for your groceries and stuff around town, I, I'd have one of those. But the thing I still haven't heard as to how long these things last and what you can do with them when they don't last or do you throw out the car? Now, 75% of the batteries in the United States get repurposed. Uh, That's one thing. My buddy just bought an electric, or pardon me, a hybrid. The battery has a 10-year warranty. So... I, I don't know. That sounded like a pretty encouraging warranty to me. But last word, Sean, because I'm late for the break and I do have to go, sir, but I'll let no. you wrap it up. Uh, I know. I just appreciate that. I was just uh, you know, talking about it. I mean, I just, the, the short is, uh, why is the government blocked this? And I think this parallels to other areas of the government, but it's great that we're getting it off the ground. But the biggest thing we have to do is hold a conference here. Get the get the key players. Don't talk to people one-on-one or whoever happens to have the money or the influence to talk to somebody. Can we or somebody, or we should have a government-sponsored conference here to and put it out there, this is why you're coming. 
And I can guarantee you all the big players in the world would be here in a heartbeat. Very likely. We've got the wind, the water, the deep water port, yeah. and the proximity to America. That's the four keys to those new projects. So we got it all. Sean, appreciate the time. Enjoy okay. the chat. Thank you. Take good care. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Melinda's in the same vein, talking heat pumps. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two, Melinda, you're on the air. Uh, Yes, I'm just calling. I wondered about these uh, grants for heat pumps. Okay. Um, I wonder, could you give me the number? Because we burn all oil. Okay, so there's a couple of different things. You know, there's rebates coming from the government for uh, moving from oil to electric, and that was increased uh, in the most recent budget. Then just the basic rebate program that comes from, uh, is administered by Newfoundland uh, Power. called It's inside their Take Charge portfolio. So I can give you, let's see if I have a number. I have the website open all the time, but see if I can find a number here. Because it is Newfoundland Power, so it's not going to be too difficult to get uh, in touch with them. So the, the they only have a toll-free number on their website, but it's 1-800-663-6688. But what I'm also going to recommend, Melinda, is that there are some private companies out there that they sell and install these heat pumps. They'll help you navigate the rebate world as well, which I think is extremely helpful. Uh, One of them is called Cold Air Contracting. So if you call them, they'll walk you through the rebate. They'll help you with the paperwork. They have the product uh, on hand. They have the people working for them who can install it. And they're just one company. There's other companies doing exactly that as well. But one that I'm familiar with is called Cold Air Contracting. Let me see if I can drag up a number for them quickly. Boom. All right. Let's see. Their number is 727. Uh, 2680. 2680. And it's not cold air, it's coal, C-O-L-E, coal air contracting. C-O-L-E. Yep. Yep. It's perfect. I'll try these numbers. Yeah, they'll help you out. I'd I'd start with coal air contracting because they will do a fair bit of the work and walk you through it and tell you what's required and eligibility and how much you can save, all those types of things. They'll have that information right at their fingertips. Perfect. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Melinda. Take care. Bye-bye. And look, that's not to just promote one company or another. Just that's the one I'm familiar with off the top of my head. And uh, we've put a couple of people onto them, and they were quite pleased. Because sometimes, even when there's some fairly generous subsidies and rebates coming from, whether it be provincial governments or federal governments, sometimes it's just tricky, tricky to navigate, right? So if you can get someone... Even though, yeah, it's their business, and they're going to make some money off selling you the product and installing it, but that's nature of the world... Sometimes even getting some help to navigate those things and understand exactly what you should do so you don't make a mistake and you may all of a sudden be ineligible for rebates because you didn't do the paperwork properly, those types of things. So hopefully Melinda will figure it out. The <laughs> I saw when the real heat kicked in here in the province and someone opined or I guess wrote on Twitter that there's now two different uh, groups of people in the province. Those with mini splits and the cranky. <laughs> I don't know. Look, some of the rebates are actually pretty significant to get into the heat pump or the mini split world. You know, whether it be the full transition from oil to electric that the government's put forward, even though a lot of people still uh, prefer the oil-generated heat in, the, in their home. It, just from my own experience, 
not only is the mini split a real welcomed feature to cool off the house in these particularly hot days, but it's pretty efficient too. So, you know, there's nothing free in this world, but cost recovery and mo- many of the heat pumps, you know, when the temperature looks, when it gets really far below freezing, then, of course, the inefficiency of some of these units is not what it is when the temperature is a bit more manageable. But cost recovery for these mini splits and heat pumps is real. Just looking year over year at our own hydro bill, it's quite obvious that we're getting a bang for our buck with the installation of one of these units. Now, of course, you do exactly as you see fit. If you're happy enough with closing the curtains and keeping the sun out or just with the cross breeze in your home on these hot days, yeah, great. If it's working for you, terrific. But there's something to be said for getting some money back when you put some of these units in your home if you're interested in that at all. So that's a lot of energy talk to get the show going here this morning. But lots of great conversations can be had on just so many different things out there. And so when we come back from this particular break, Again, Friday is a key day to share a little bit of good news and some of the positivity where you live because there's lots of that going around. But any topic that you think deserves more attention or you'd like to offer your perspective on anything you've heard or to bring up a new subject, do it right after this break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Uh, So we've been discussing the fact that we are getting some assistance from the province of Quebec to deal with the several fires that are raging in different parts of the province. Showing us on line number one is the merit of uh, Hermitage, Sandyville. That's uh, Steve Crew. Steve Crew on line number one. Good morning, Mayor Crew. You're on the air. Good morning, Penny. Welcome to the show, sir. What's going on in your region? Uh, well, the highway is closing in this morning there, and uh, nobody's able to get in or out uh, on the Beatty Spare Highway and uh, start becoming, uh, I guess, costly to the people that are stuck on, uh, I guess, the Grand Falls end of her, having to stay in hotels and, provide, you know, buy meals and stuff like that. So, uh, I just think it's probably time for somebody to probably open up a, uh, a school or a gym or something so that they can, you know, uh, get rid of crossing. I guess they're there this morning providing meals. God love them. And the, the Exploits Valley uh, or the Exploits uh, Motel there at uh, the turnoff there has, has been great for everybody. I mean, uh, they've gone above and beyond, and uh, we certainly like to thank them for doing all they've done. But, uh, you know, if this is going to be closed throughout the weekend, uh, you know, I think we need to get a uh, – school gymnasium or something opening visual falls at grand falls and start uh, getting everybody in one place and probably start providing them you know with meals and stuff like that if you know if that's going to be the case if it's going to be closed all weekend right now is unknown so yeah nobody needs it nobody knows right so you know i mean it's, a, it's getting uh, to be a bit of a costly measure for for these people i'm i'm stuck on the end too but i'm lucky i got parents in gander and i got you know family in that uh, grand falls but that's not the case for everybody and there's a lot of people needing to get doctor's appointments so i got a cousin on the other end that needs to get to uh, gander for a, a plane and uh, you know it's not it don't look good right so a lot of a lot of things that are going on right now that you know we're going to have to show that figure out something eventually it just keeps you know continues to last sure i mean i feel for people who are stuck unable to get back to their home down in the canegra peninsula and of course for folks who are in the in their own home in their own community being cut off it must be an, an interesting and frustrating maybe half scary uh issue to have to deal with because there's one road in one road out so it's yeah, a it's yeah. a problem now i don't know what the future holds yesterday the government was saying that they were going to try to open 
opened up the highway from 8 to noon, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Then we were told, based on some shift in wind direction and strength and what have you, that there's going to be remain closed all day today. An update apparently coming shortly about the status for tomorrow morning and Sunday morning. Hopefully, the weather plays along and the firefighters doing their level best to contain the fire are able to see that highway open in the next couple of mornings because getting in and out, you know, it sounds so fundamental. But if you just, even if you're sitting in St. John's today, and there's so many different ways to get in and out of this town, this city, just imagine being cut off in full. Can't get out. Can't get in. It's a really remarkable thing. And, of course, it's through no, nobody's particular fault here, but whether it be community groups or the municipalities, if they can come up with some ideas where they can try to ease the pain, that would be a great thing for those especially stuck on the outside. Yeah, yeah, exactly, Patty. I came down to Beer and Plants Highway yesterday, and when I got to, I think when they call Plovers Old, it's 75 kilometers across to Con, you know, towards Con River, right? So, I mean, we came down yesterday, and there was a route across there. We could have turned down, and everything would be fine, right? But uh, that's not, you know, and that's not going to happen overnight. So, like I say, that's something that probably needs to be looked at in the future, whether it be a toll highway or whatever, whatever it takes to. But like I say, it, it's bad for uh, bad for us being cut off down there, and. Uh, Another thing, Penny, like uh, I watched the news last night, both of them, and there's not a lot of media coverage for this. And uh, I think, like, you know, they should be out talking to the people, out, you know, stuck animal land and, you know, getting getting the word out, uh, you know, how serious this is. I mean, when all these people start needing to get back to work, you know, on the can't get some people on the other end trying to get down. I mean, there's there's come home years in Aber Britain this weekend. You got navigators playing right now. The navigators are, you know, on this side, right? So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that is costing, uh, you know, towns money and, uh, you know, groceries. I mean, everyone's groceries is down there. I've been on two weeks holiday, so, like, I, I've been away from town. But, I mean, it's got to be getting starting to get bad down there, right? So, I mean, we, you know, hopefully this doesn't last much longer. But, like, say, it's 10 o'clock here this morning, and it's already 24 degrees, and the humidity is looking to be, like, 38 this morning. So that's not going to help at all today, right? And it's, it's windy in there. You can see the trees moving, so. Like I say, I think it's time for, uh, you know, somebody to get involved and, and start uh, start getting the gymnasium or something open. Just get these people all in one place and uh, hopefully we'll, get, you know, get a, get out of it as soon as we can, right? But uh, it, so. it's getting frustrating for people now. I understand. You know, and you, you mentioned food and other supplies. People forget. I mean, we only have, we're told, we only have about four or five days of supply of food on the island. <laughs> Period. Yeah. So if Ocean X and Marine Atlantic can't run for a week, we find ourselves in a really bizarre spot. You know, is there anywhere else in the country that is so remotely cut off that if they experience, say, for instance, just some nasty storms or whatever, then, you know, all of a sudden food becomes scarce. So I'm sure it's exactly that case down where you live. And I would imagine the retailers and restaurants and grocery stores, they're trying to uh, eye every window of opportunity to see their trucks and delivery crowd coming down the Beta Spare Highway. But yeah. it's, you know, when it's every, anybody's guess as to the next time it'll be open, I'm sure the frustration and the, the anxiety is real. Uh, anything else you'd like to say here while we have this morning, Mayor Crew? Yeah, yeah like I say, I, another thing I like to do is, like I say, you know, Harry Mace Hales Lovers has been keeping us up to date, you know what I mean, on the hour. Uh, we, you know, in all emergency services have been, you know, having conversations with us probably twice a day, every day, keeping us up to date in that, and we thank them for everything they've done. But, like I say, with the weekend coming in that now, and, like I say, people stranded that, uh, and if it's going to continue into the weekend, I think that, uh, you know, we need to get somebody to open up the uh, something so and get people like say all in one place because i mean they're all pulled up in exploits motel and they're staying in their cars and stuff like that i mean they only got so many rooms but i mean they've been great keeping it open and that so like i say troy the big bouquet to them and the red cross there for everything they've done and uh, and for our mha as well but they like say there's only so much he can do as well we'll just keep us updated in that so 
hopefully those uh, water bombers will get in from Quebec, and hopefully they're already here, and you know, hopefully this gets uh, resolved as soon as possible. Yeah, I, they yeah. were scheduled to arrive yesterday. I don't know if that happened or not, but that was the uh, announcement made by both governments. I appreciate the time, Mayor Crew. Fingers crossed yep. they can get it under control and reopen the highway for all the obvious reasons. Yep, thanks for your time too, Patty. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Mayor Steve Crew down in Hermitage, Sandyville. Okay, today might be a great day to get on the program to talk about whatever. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue is 273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long-distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. A little roundup now, the 204th running of the Royal St. John's Regatta. Join us on line number one. It's the president of the Royal St. John's Regatta. That's Noel Thomas Kennel. Good morning, Noel. You are on the air. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Happy to have you on. And uh, let's start with congratulations. For the first Thank time since much. 2019, we're able to have a regatta like we're used to having a regatta with the rowers and their fans and supporters and concessions and vendors. It was a massive success. So bravo. Thank you very much. I think from uh, from Pond's side, it really seems like a great success. I'm, I'm taking it all in here this morning. No doubt you are. You know, just for, you know, back to basics, like everything else in this world, you know, we go to these events and they come off like they do, but we don't really give a lot of consideration on just how much work is involved in organizing <laughs> everything from a garden party all the way through the biggest garden party in the province at the regatta. Yeah. You know, so I would imagine planning for next year starts today. September 1. We're going to take a couple days Good off. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, so for sure. Um, you know, I've got uh, a fantastic committee behind me. Um, it, it pretty much is a well-oiled machine where, you know, we know what we're doing, but that doesn't take away from the fact that it is a lot of work. It's a lot of work. So it's one thing on the lake side with the concessions and the vendors, but of course the keen focus for your committee and for many is what happens on the water. There's been a lot of work done with the Learn to Row program being launched and the Coxon programs that are available to folks who want to steer a boat. 18 races yesterday, 71 crews, that's all good news. Some of the real positive moves the committee's made with the women rowing the long course and men able to row the short course is all very positive. There's a lot of women crews. What do you do to attract more men? Is the key of focus right now the availability to row the short course? Because the long course is fairly intimidating. It's a daunting task. <laughs> I think so. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think so. Um, I think it's a fantastic uh, way to get introduced to the sport if, if, you know, you're a little bit intimidated by having to go all the way up the pond, um, you know, that option is now available. And I think that that should help. I've heard a lot of comments from um, past crews who, uh, well, championship men's crews who want to want to try it. And then I've got, uh, you know, men who have never really wanted to row because it is intimidating and they're going, I can do that. And then I've got uh, a couple of master's age people who've said, I'm going to do that because I can. I think it's great. Now, I have heard a couple of comments. I'm not going to necessarily get you to react to it, but a few of my buddies say, I don't want to be in the first crew to row the short course (laughs) because of whatever. You know, people will say, oh, my goodness, why won't you take on the the long course itself? But I think that's a little bit silly. If you just want to get back in the boat, you might not need to have the kind of commitment to the ergs and the spins all year to take on the short course. So it might be, you know, time-saving and a bit more manageable or what have you. But let's move off to the other side of the historic event yesterday 
yesterday at 10.50 when four women's crews took on the long course. I mean, it's, you know, I heard Siobhan Duff say yesterday, well, it only took 33 years. They were petitioning back in 1989 to see this change, and now finally it's come to pass. I'm sure as a female rower, it was a special event for you and all involved. You could hear the chairs ringing around the pond oh, as the race was finishing up, and Studio Verso came home at 10.28. I mean, that is a stellar time. Yep, it is. It absolutely is. I mean, it's something uh, incredible that we saw yesterday around the pond. Um, I, so two female presidents, uh, Gail Malone and myself, and uh, Gail was the gunner, and I started the race. So we were up in the timing tower just crying. <laughs> it was incredible. Um, you know, it, it felt like a championship race and the crowd was incredible and uh you know i spoke to uh the four teams afterwards and they just are beaming they, they i mean they're they're bonded now forever in, in making history so it's a it's just something really special that we witnessed yesterday and one of the crews uh four 16 year olds and two 18 year olds mm -hmm. that really should go a long way to showing other interested female rowers of all ages that it's there you can do it go get it i was a little bit frustrated as a male rower to hear them say how easy it was <laughs> but, <laughs> but good for them well, they trained really hard oh, of course they did <laughs> they yeah did. And so I guess some of them had been rowing since the age of 12, and one of their mothers was the coxo. Just all of these little yeah. individual stories from different boats really is, is what makes the regatta so special. It is. I, whether it's a vendor story or a, a public story or committee or rower story, everybody has such a connection and a personal history and tradition, and, and that's what I love so much about the regatta is it's, it's something special for everyone individually. And uh, you can ask anybody around the lake and they'll tell you something that they remember um, about the regatta and it's just uh, it's so it's such a special event i'm sure you're physically and mind weary this morning <laughs> but share one of those stories that you think might uh, pique the interest or give people a reason to smile about a personal regatta story whether it be your own or one that you've heard in the recent past uh, well my my very peak happened yesterday uh i guess when my my 10 year old hopped in the boat for the first time so uh, that was absolutely the best thing I've ever ever experienced. Uh, watching her row in her first uh, her first regatta and squirt crew. So they were on on the youngest crew on the pond. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty proud. <laughs> and they're probably hooked forever. I think so. Honestly, like they they go down to those practices with beaming smiles, and they absolutely love their coxing. Uh, it's just such an, a positive experience that they've had and uh, and to be honest they they didn't get very many spins because the weather's been really terrible so with the wet with the wind and we didn't want to put them out they're, they're brand new so they really didn't get that many practices in but um what a what an accomplishment for every rower on that pond but the littlest ones they're so proud so they should <laughs> so be so proud yeah absolutely you know, getting on the water is the very best, uh, and those hateful ergs is, of course, part of it <laughs> if you're one of the yeah. really competitive teams. Uh, last one. So sometimes mm -hmm. it's kind of hard to organize six people that commit at the same time to be able to get the spins in or whatever extra mm -hmm. kind of uh, work they want to put in. But the Learn to Row program kind of takes some of the bite away. You might be able to find yourself a crew. You might be able to strike up a few buddies. And the next thing you know, through the Le Learn to Row program, all of a sudden, six like-minded people may indeed become a crew one of these days. So it's an introduction Absolutely. that I think goes a long way to helping more and more people get in the boat. 
Absolutely. So our Chevron Learn to Road program, uh, we usually start a little bit after the beginning of the season. And uh, like you said, you can sign up as an individual instead of having to find five or six other people. And um, so we have staff that will take when we get six people in the boat, they'll take them out. And it doesn't matter. Well, we'll keep similar ages, of course, but it doesn't matter who you are and where you come from. So if you want to come down and, and try it out, then the, the Chevron Learn to Roll program is the best, uh, the best option. And like you said, we've created many teams from that. Yeah, no doubt you have. Uh, so, uh, again, it takes an awful lot of people on your committee to pull this off. Even though it's a well-oiled machine, there's still a lot of different moving parts. So, congratulations and looking forward to the 205th running where we're all hoping, I'm hoping to get back in a boat because I, I felt so jealous watching people <laughs> row yesterday. So, uh, oh, I know. <laughs> great stuff. Uh, anything else you'd like to offer this morning, Noelle? Uh, I'd just like to say, <clears throat> excuse me, thank you to uh, the government of, of Newfoundland for the sub- support with the Come Home Year. Thanks to my committee and all of our sponsors, the vendors, and the public support who came out yesterday in in massive crowds. It was fantastic, and I think it was a very successful day. Good to have you on, Noel. Thanks. Thanks so much. Take good care. Bye-bye. That's Noelle Thomas-Campbell. She's the president of the Royal St. John's Regatta. She mentioned Gail Malone. Of course, Gail was past president and one of the driving forces, I would imagine, about the ability for women to finally get to row that long course. So let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Mike's in the queue. Wants to talk about the proposed wind development in Port to Port. And then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Oh, welcome back. Let's go. Line number two. Mike, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, good morning. Hi, good morning uh, to you. Patty, that was a great interview with the, uh, the course captain and the chair of the committee at the regatta. For those of us in the immediate area, what a job they did. Uh, Patty, uh, also thanks and congratulations to BOTM's coverage of that yesterday. That was, uh, that was a, uh, a great job. Well done uh, by the station and keeping everything timely updated. Uh, have I lost you, Patty, or are you still there? Just listening, Mike. Okay, yeah, thank you. Uh, Patty, I'm calling this morning uh, about the uh, proposed development out in the Port of Port Peninsula area um, and uh, of wind power, hydrogen, you know, things for the export market and things like that. Uh, First of all, I want to begin by saying that I'm a big supporter of development, of positive development of that resource for Newfoundland and Labrador's benefits. I, I think it's great. I think it's a great idea. I'd like to see it go ahead. I'd like to see it go ahead correctly, positively, you know, uh, completely. And, and there, that's my concern uh, because I, I don't know if you read it or not. There's a, an article out there, a writer out there, Uncle Gnarly. I think it's probably one of the most well-informed uh, blogs out there in terms of uh, energy in Newfoundland and Labrador. It's got some really great contributors on it. They raised some really important questions on it uh, in their blog, in, in his blog this week. Um, and, uh, you know, before I forget it, has Mr. Brown, our consumer advocate, called your show yet to speak on on this proposed development? No, but I don't... Look, I, I saw that tweet too, Mike. I did respond to it, but my initial thought on that was I don't know what role the consumer advocate would play in this particular proposal because it doesn't. it's not scheduled to have any taxpayer money, number one, nor is it going to have an impact on my hydro rates, number two. So he's not really in the world of environmental assessments and whether or not this is a business model that we see to be viable, whether or not we should be selling our lease and crown land. So I don't know if this is in his ballywick 
at all. If it doesn't impact my rights, I'm not sure what Dennis Brown would have to say about it, to be honest. Well, I'll be honest. I don't think you know. Well, I can't speak for you, but I don't know if it's going to act, impact my rates or not. But how would it? And and that's, yeah, well, you know, I, I, I'd i encourage you to read the article by Uncle Harley yesterday and going into these things. They're much more well-researched and well-versed and have a great history in energy development in Newfoundland and Labrador. They're saying we don't know. And, and I agree we don't know. It's like, how could it? You, you just, that was a great question. Because nobody really knows. And so I'd like to see a consumer advocate, Mr. Brown, be proactive. I, I get a little bit tired of seeing them coming in after the fact and trying to clean up a mess or comment on a mess or say, yeah, there is a mess. We all know that. I'd like to see as a consumer, as a taxpayer in Newfoundland and Labrador and my, and my representative, I'd like to see that office, not necessarily Mr. Brown, but I'd like to see that office be proactive and go out and find out what, if any, in its opinion, this could or will have on ratepayers in Newfoundland and Labrador. Because I don't think anybody knows, Patty. Well, I'm happy to send... I'd love to see it. Dennis Brown has been really accessible for us here on the show, so if I send him a note, I'm sure he'll chime in. But again, look, unless there's something I'm missing with this project, if none of that power makes its way to the grid... I don't know how in the world it impacts my rates. Now, I'll ask Mr. Brown if he has a thought on the matter. I will, and I generally do read Uncle Narley. I haven't seen it this week, but I just don't know how that works because unless it's on the grid, then it doesn't contribute to anything, whether it be the supply or price. Pardon? How do you know if it's going to make it to our grid or not? The proposal is that it's an export market. That's the proposal. It's a three-phase proposal. But nobody really knows the details. There's been no study on this. We're at the stage now, I think, where we may today, as, as, as early as today, for, you know, lift an environmental study of pipes. We haven't done any detail. The only one who really knows about full energy development, I think, is Mr. Paddock, who used to be on this committee. I don't know what the committee was. It's apparently some secret committee that Mr. Fury had, uh, had uh, struck. You know, it's sort of everything he ever wanted to know about energy development, Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, but didn't dare ask publicly. I don't know. It It had access to all of the records by Newfoundland and Labrador Hydro. It had all the records of federal provincial negotiations and what the future is. That committee had that. And so the person who had access to it says, oops, I'm out of here. Now, I, I don't mean that to be negative reflection of Mr. Paddock. I'm sure he's a very such a great person in integrity. But and then shows up just days later on uh, as a participant in one of the big proponents to do a major project. And there will be a lot of taxpayer money, federal and or provincial, going into this. Mr. Paddock, with all of this knowledge that he has acquired, if that was a, a former minister or a former top official in the department, in any department, who mere days later, after leaving all of this private and top-secret information, having read it and with it, who did that, I mean, we'd be all over it. First of all, we'd have them sign an agreement that says, you can't do this. You can't take this knowledge that nobody else has and go and commercialize. You can't use it to commercialize it. But we haven't done that. So that's got me concerned. I'm not saying he's going to do anything wrong. He may very well be one of the best things that ever happened to Watson Slate's bread. But there's so many questions on it, and there seems to be such a rush to get this through. Your first caller this morning, who seemed to be very knowledgeable on batteries, it was very good to listen to him. But he raised some, you know, he raised a really good point. If you had here a, a conference 
next week, that early, you'd see people from Europe, from states, from other parts of Canada, beating a path to Newfoundland and Labrador's doorway to find out what's going on and how they can participate. Mr. Risley and Mr. Paddock are not in this out of the goodness of their heart. I'm sure Mr. Paddock is very deeply committed to Newfoundland and Labrador. But they're in here to make a buck. And yeah. it seems like we're narrowing ourselves to that, Patty. Now, maybe that's me. I'm not a tall branch on a tree in anybody's feet. But it just seems that uh, the first thing gets thrown up is, oh, well, don't don't go on Churchill Falls and don't go on Muskrat Falls. You can't go back and live it. Well, you know what? If we don't learn from it, we will, we're condemned to do the same things. Didn't the Williams government bring in a law, I think you referred to it, which wouldn't let the public utilities board look at this at, at Muskrat, mm-hmm. and and is and is and you know isn't this what's going on here? I mean, if I were the public utilities board chair, and I were Mr. Brown, and Mr. Brown was saying, "No, I don't get it until somebody files an application." Well, Mr. Brown is the consumer advocate. It doesn't have anything to do with it. To come out and say, "Hey, people." This may have an impact on uh, on our taxpayers out there, on our consumers. So I want to know now, before it all happens, what's going to happen. Those other projects I you mentioned, though. Requests. Sure, and I'm happy to send them an email. The other projects you mentioned, though, are taxpayer dollars. So unless there's a yes, taxpayer sir. dollar involved in this, and when we asked, the, the answer was no. So if there's none of my money going into it, I don't know how we adjudicate the the veracity of their business model, I just really don't know. And I also said earlier this morning that the environmental assessment doesn't seem to cover the entirety of the project, which is strange, to say the very least. Mr. Paddock, the committee you were talking about, he was very quietly uh, appointed to be the chair of the Churchill River Energy Analysis Review Group, or whatever the formal title was, and then, of course, with potential for conflict, real or perceived, with him being a partner of Risley's and potentially and possibly involved in this uh, proposal in Port of Port, then, yeah, there's obviously reasons why that's not appropriate. I don't know if it came to pass. I actually asked the Premier about that exact thing on this program. So, I mean, okay, last one for me, then I'll let you summarize. I'll, I'll get Dennis Brown on, but I don't know, unless it has an impact on my rates, and I haven't seen anything in the proposal, of which I read it all, that has anything to do with the Newfoundland Labrador electric, electricity grid, then I'm not so sure what Brown will say, but I'll let him say it on his own behest because he's not afraid. But I'll tell you one, one thing about Dennis Brown. He's not afraid to say what he thinks. So uh, we'll get him on the show. Yeah, well, I, I, that, you know, that would be a contribution. I don't think we know if it's going to cost taxpayers anything or not. First of all, you may recall a couple of weeks ago, Mr. Biden in the United States announced major billions commitment to uh, wind energy and other types of similar types of development. Europe is crying because of what's going on with Russia cutting off its sources of, of, of energy. And, uh, you know, and so the federal government of Canada is committing hundreds of millions of dollars to this type of an initiative. I suspect our taxpayer dollars from the province will in all likelihood be there. So I don't know, Patty, if it's going to be there or not. The proposal you're speaking about is not the complete proposal. It's like page one of page 100 pages in the document. It, it is just a beginning. So we don't know where this is going. And I want to know where it's going as a taxpayer up front. I want to make sure we maximize our return on investment. And these are legitimate questions as a taxpayer and a, a resident of Duplan Labrador. Patty, thank you very much.
Appreciate the time. I asked Minister Parsons that direct question on the show about taxpayer dollars uh, on this one or others. He says the government does not intend to invest taxpayer money in these projects. Now, if that's not going to be the case for every project, then I'm happy to ask the question again because it's my money too. It's, uh, you know, I'm sure he doesn't intend it to be, whatever that means. But anyway, uh, you know what, Patty, I, I, I want to see something in black and white. I want something more definitive from Mr. Parsons and the government. I don't think we're going to get it. But I'd like to see you. Thank you, Patty. Have a great day. You too. Take care, Mike. Bye-bye. All right, let's uh, take a break. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Bill, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. Morning to you. I'd like to start by saying that I love the regatta. <laughs> Great. <laughs> And uh, it was a beautiful day down by the lake yesterday, and uh, the regatta committee did a wonderful job. But I just got one problem with the whole regatta. Every year I've been going there my whole life, I've been going to the regatta, and I put a little bit of money in my pocket, and I walk down to the regatta a couple of kilometers, and I play the wheel, and, and I get something to eat, and I save the best part for last on the way home. I like to stop at the beer tent and have one beer and watch a race before I walk home, Patty. Mm -hmm. But yesterday, when I got to the beer tent, and it was a hot one yesterday, and I was pretty hot, and I just finished a big old samosa down the, down the way a bit, and I was looking forward to that beer, and I got up there, and they had a sign at the beer tent, Patty. Do you know what the sign said? It said debit or credit only. So I had $20 in me pocket and I couldn't get a beer at the regatta. They turned me away. I said to the woman at the door, at the gate, I said, I just walked two kilometers to the regatta and saved the best part for last to get a beer. And what am I gonna do now? And you know what she told me, Patty? She told me to go to the Legion and get a beer. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> now, now, I got a $20 bill with the Queen's head on the back, and this is the Royal Regatta. I'm pretty sure that's the Royal Queen on the back of the, of the $20 bill, and they wouldn't take it. What is on the goal, Patty? Can you find out for me? Well, of course, I don't know how much that would have to do with the committee itself when the, a private operator this year was uh, Kitty Bitty took it over. So I suppose, like others, that when you keep cash out of the equation, it makes things a little bit more streamlined, easier to uh, do the remittance and stuff. But hey, I mean, cash is still king. I don't really appreciate it when I can't use my $20 bill to get something or other as well. So I understand your frustration on that front. And not, I mean, as much as it might sound a bit silly, not everybody has a credit card or a debit card either. They simply don't. And some people, when you know full well when you go to play the games and to buy a bite to eat and stuff, all you need is your cash. So maybe exactly. you leave your wallet at home for all the obvious reasons and bring your $20 bill or your 50 or however much you're planning on spending. And that could and should include the ability to buy a beer if you want one. Sure, I get it. Okay, Patty, I'd just like to hear what other people think about that because it really ticked me off. And I love to regat it. I go every year. Even when I lived out west, I used to plan my holidays around coming to Newfoundland and and coming back and going to the regatta. And I always brought cash money because, like you said, you go, it's not a good idea to bring a wallet down to the regatta. You know, a lot of people, close quarters, you just put a bit of money in your pocket and you're good to go. But now it's changed. So I wonder if this is going to be a regular thing there or what's going to happen? 
even if people just had the heads up and they knew that they weren't going to be able to use their cash at the bear tent, then that's, you know, at least a step in the right direction so you don't get caught on the outside looking in. If you knew you were planning on going to the bear tent and you knew you needed your debit card or your credit card, people would have probably brought exactly that. You, you were not alone. I guarantee you yesterday some people were walking into the bear tent saying, ah, oh, damn, I don't have a wallet. I just took me money, my cash money. So anyway, I'll put it out there for you. Okay. Thank you, Patty. All the best, Bill. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. One thing, someone had sent me an email earlier uh, looking at what is the aftermath of the crowds down on George Street at the festival. And it's pretty messy. I tell you what, there's garbage everywhere. And, of course, that's not in the best interest of the George Street Association and or the patrons and or the bar owners, restaurants, what have you. So it's a bit much that they don't clean it up immediately when the crowds disperse. Someone has asked me what it's like down at Kitty Vitti uh, for the same reason. In years past, now if you've been down around the lake this morning and you've seen what it looks like on the aftermath of the regatta, years past, the next morning, place is spotless. As soon as people start to make their way away from Kitty Bitty Lake, the cleanup crews kick into action immediately. So if you can fill me in and let me know whether or not uh, it has been cleaned up, because in years past it absolutely was. But the state of the pictures that I saw on George Street, not great. Someone also made an interesting point about what I think is an excellent idea is for women to officially row the long course on Regatta Day, race day. The comment was, what about the fact that those competing on that long course were ineligible to qualify for the women's championship race? They all knew it before they registered for the, the long course race. And, you know, for instance, with the winning crew, so many of the members of that crew, if not all of them, have been there, done that. So I guess they made it a choice amongst themselves to say, well, do we want to try to qualify for the championship race and maybe win it, or do we want to be part of history and roll the long course? And I guess the same question was asked amongst the crews of all four of the crews. Now, further to that, I get that concern, but that's an individual choice made by these racers, is how could you even put a mechanism in place? Because if you don't roll the same course, how can you draw any comparison about who should or should not qualify for the championship race? It can only be based on one measure. If all the men's crews rode the long course, then the top six uh, times would make their way into the championship. Same thing for the women who are rowing uh, the short course. So I don't know how you would deal with that in years to come. And unless there's a critical mass of whether it be men rowing the short course or women rowing the long course, unless you have more and well in excess of the six stakes available, then I don't know how they do anything any different on that front but I guess they simply thought yeah you know what that works for me part of history is I think for them and I guess the decision was it feels more important than trying to qualify for the championship race because there's lots of champions especially in that winning crew boat and I suppose when that one crew that I also mentioned to the well earlier you know four 16 year olds and two 18 year olds whether or not they will make it their annual play is to row the long course or when they start rowing those short course kind of times that'll put them instead for championship races and maybe championships then maybe they'll make different decisions I also went on to mention (laughs) one of my buddies in particular said, man, I don't want to be the guy uh, that rows the short course for the first time and I have to ask the questions about don't you have the guts and the time and the training to go ahead and row the long course? Hopefully that kind of goes away. I bet you there's going to be men's crews next year rowing the shorter course for obvious reasons. A little bit easier, obviously. And maybe they don't have a crew of six that has all the time required for either erg training or getting all the spins in required to 
be a legitimate crew to go up and down the pond because it's not just about rowing for time. There's there's a certain wrong way to do it and a right way to do it, and it takes a bit of time to figure out how to pull an oar in, in, in proper timing and your own oar when you're in one of these racing shells. So, yeah, I think it's probably going to work out for the best on all of those fronts. Now, when Mike just called about knowing more about the details surrounding this particular proposal in Port of Port or any other proposal that comes forward on wind, we're happy to do it, of course. I mean, especially as a ratepayer taxpayer, if it's going to have any implication on my pocketbook, then of course I want to know all the details. Whether it be Dead Sullivan or anybody else asking questions, I don't think they've made any declarations. I will read his blog this afternoon. I don't think, and Mike didn't intimate, that they've made any declarations about unreported details, simply asking questions about will this have an impact? What do? What is it that we don't know about this proposal? I don't know if there's been a time finalized for when Environment Minister, Environment Minister Bertie Davis is scheduled to give us an update on maybe the project being released from this phase of the environmental assessment. And I suppose at that moment, because I asked the question directly of Minister Parsons, I think it was last week, about taxpayer money in wind projects. And he says the government has no intention to do it. Now, I guess when this project, if it becomes released today and becomes something that's going to move forward, we will be more than happy to ask the specific question about this specific project, not only when and if it's going to have any taxpayer dollars involved, but the questions we also asked them about leasing crown land versus selling crown land, uh, the access to the grid for any of these projects. I think there's a difference between the hydrogen projects versus, for instance, if a mine site wants to set up a wind, uh, wind farm to power their own operations, sell any excess power back to the grid, which absolutely has an impact on my rates. So I think there's kind of two different things, but on Mike's behalf, and others out there, Des Sullivan and others, if those questions need to be answered, we will ask them. Uh, Dave, can we send an email off to Dennis Brown to see if he's at all interested in dealing with Mike's question directly? Because, again, Dennis Brown, unless it has an impact on my rates, I don't know what his involvement would be, but he's more than more than up to the task of speaking for himself. So we'll see if we can get Mr. Brown on the show. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, whatever we're talking about, well, that's up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. All right, let's go to line number two. Leona, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? I'm doing very well. Thanks. How about you? Good, thank you. I'm a first-time caller, so forgive my stuttering. Um, I wanted to call in and let you know you asked about uh, the condition of the lake this morning after the regatta yesterday, and I called to say that the lake and the uh, trails are absolutely beautiful. It's usually the case. I mean, every year that I've uh, went down the next day after the regatta, you'd never know there was an event there the day before with thousands and thousands and thousands of people and all the grout they leave behind. So I'm glad it's the case again this year. Good stuff. It, I stopped, actually, and because, you know, they have the green bins around and they're filling them up. And I, and I stopped and I said to the crew that was there, I said, this is absolutely magnificent. You, I, I know you don't hear, you know, good things a whole lot of, <laughs> lots of times people have lots to criticize, but it's important to celebrate the wins and the, you know, lots of people. I mean, I walk the lake regularly because I live near the lake and lots of us, you know, we'll, we'll stop and pick up a piece of litter every now and then and throw it in. I mean, it's everybody's responsibility to keep our environment clean. But there wasn't, I, I stopped and picked up a couple of pieces of garbage. There literally wasn't much to pick up. And considering that the regatta ended, what, seven, eight yesterday evening, and it's, you know, 12 hours later or, or, or a little more, 
and that lake was absolutely beautiful. Yeah, good work by the city of St. John's on that front. And I mean, it's not just picking up the garbage. All the concessionaires and their vendors have to break down what they put, put, put forward for whatever they were doing, cash wheels or otherwise, and they're all gone. You would never say there was an event lakeside yesterday, but that's exactly the way it should be. I will add to that. It's the way it should be down in George Street for the festival as well. Just imagine visitors walking through and seeing what was left behind from the night before this concert. It's just not good enough. Good on the regatta committee, good on the city of St. John's for cleaning up around Kitty Vitty. Bravo. Thank you, Patty. I appreciate it. Glad to have you on the show, Leona. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Uh, On the world of garbage, there's garbage all over the road on Peacekeeper's Way, the eastbound lane just past Fowler's Road. So look out for the garbage. And makes it a little bit more difficult to pick it up when it's the highway versus when it's Lakeside or on George Street. Anywho, let's go. Line one, Ron, you're on the air. Yes, bye. I uh, just heard body phone in about the 20 hours at the beer tent. Right. I got a comment to make on that. Um, when I was there Tuesday night, um, body was with me, had American money. We never knew either going in there. And uh, so I took my 20 out, my snaz on whatever, debits, whatever, or credit card. But my buddy with the American money, he was on the other side. He had two people serving there. And I heard him saying the same thing to my buddy. And then when I turned and went back, he was buying two beers, nine bucks each, $18. And uh, buddy said, no, no, he said, I'll take your American money. And he, he did actually take the $20 American. Because my buddy said, I don't need him. He said, we got no change. I don't need change. <laughs> oh, man. So he took the 20 American, but he, was, he wouldn't take my 20 Canadian. Yeah, and so that's, just pocketed the 20 American and said, geez, it's pretty good. I'm going to States like next month, or I don't know. Or even if he's just going to the bank to convert it to Canadian funds, that's oh, a bit wow, of a sleeve really, move. Really, really. And I did phone uh, the brewery yesterday, spoke to management down there about the price of the water, the way they're selling the water down there. And it is, you know, the water, you know, is you got to buy two bottles for nine bucks. So, you know. It's just kind of crazy to me. But, but they did take the American money. They wouldn't take the one with the picture of Queen. Yeah, what do you know? Whoever's on that point, the American, they didn't mind taking that one. I think it's Ben Franklin off the top of my head. Um, yeah. So, or is it Nigel Jackson is the 20? I can't remember. I uh, don't ask me. I don't <laughs> Anyway, uh, you know, uh, Dave tells me it's Lincoln on the 20? Oh, I don't know. It doesn't matter. Okay, yeah. so with the $20 issue, for starters, they shouldn't be doing that, <laughs> taking the American and not taking the Canadian. That's no, really, a bit of a scummy yeah. move. Yeah. But was the water two bu- uh, 9 bucks for two bottles in the beer tent? Someone's telling me that it was $7 a bottle in the beer tent. I don't know. I didn't go to the no, beer tent. I just along the side the pond. Well, you had to buy the ticket $9, Yeah. and it was $2 for... You, you, you got to buy the ticket for nine bucks, but they give you two bottles of water. Even, but you can't buy one bottle. And I phoned the brewery yesterday morning and asked for speak to management. Someone from management spoke to me, and he's not. That's the way it is. And he started saying something about NLC regulations. And I said, "Man, I said, don't tell me NLC is regulating the water. Don't tell me that." You know. And uh, he said, "Boy, that's the going rate for the water down there." I said, "Boy, if I go to the hot dog cart and buy a hot dog and a bottle of water, buddy's not telling me I got to buy two bottles of water." You know, is is you know is not so easy. Yeah, anyway, they... um, the management guy did say to the management guy, "I said, does this seem exorbitant to you?" And he said, "Yes, it does." But he said, "That's the system we got." So, you know, so I, I paid nine dollars for two bottles of water. Yeah. They, they got you where they want you. Oh, yeah, I think it's ridiculous for them to do that down that tent down there. Yeah. yeah you should go back to the Lions Club or something that had it there before. Like, get the old fellas down there selling the beer. So. Fair enough. Yeah. 
for charity is like kind of thing, right? Yeah. Instead of pro- instead of straight profit, it's called charity. You know. So. Yeah, and then there's questions about whether or not the committee gets a cut of X, Y, and Z. Uh, I think maybe some corners it's exaggerated what happens there, but it's always important to know the details because facts uh, rule. Uh, appreciate the time, Ron. Thanks a lot. Yeah, okay, thank you. Bye. So, there, you know, someone also said, uh, well, Buddy could have given me 20 bucks to someone with a debit card who could have bought the beer for him or, yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff he could do, and it is Jackson on the American 20. Uh, whether or not that's neither here nor there, but I mean, come on, right? Happy enough to take the American green back. Worth a little bit more than the Canadian dollar, but boys, oh boys. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the PC member for exploits. That's Playman Forsey. Good morning, Playman. You're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. Morning to you. How are you doing this morning? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? Good, good. Paddy, I just wanted to uh, talk about the uh, four fires here at Central, of course. Uh, you know the forest fires are, are out of control, and they're uh, you know they're they're big fires, and people should watch, especially on the Bayswater Highway right now, Route 360. Uh, it's closed as of the moment, certainly. Uh, but uh, you know it's uh, it's a, a bad area, a lot of smoke in the area. Even breathing this morning, in I'm here in Bishop Falls actually, and breathing you know the smoke down across the river this morning. It's 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 really uh, really heavy, and, and there's no trouble to smell it. And I know the uh, Forest fires heavy, but crews are doing what they can, and uh, you know it's uh, we just gotta be careful at this moment. And I'm not sure what else we could do. Like, I mean, we heard from Air Crew talking about the fact that it's been a pretty costly venture for folks stuck on the outside and can't get back to their home, whether it be in Hermitage, uh, Hermitage uh, or Sandyville. I don't know what responsibility anybody has on that front. And I know it's costly and frustrating for many, and is just as, as it is for those who are stuck down the Conegra Peninsula and can't get out via the road anyway. So I don't know what's next. But, I mean, we know full well that the firefighters and everyone involved are doing everything possible to be able to fight that fire get it contained and see the highway reopen so i don't really know where we go with this it's a real shame that there's so many fires burning and some of them out of control and some of the seen highway closures but i really don't know what the next step is or what anyone can or should do about it yeah i know patty and it is unfortunate in some situations regards to uh, uh people trying to get back and forth uh, yeah and I, and I know it's great and habit to some uh but this this changes uh daily not only daily this just changes every couple of hours because the wind here today is really high conditions you know we're, we're looking at 32 degrees at the highest point today probably and those uh, those dry conditions wind conditions it, it's been basically unpredictable i guess with regards to which way uh, the fire is going to go and when it's going to flare up and uh, you know they tried to open the road uh, i know they, they were open at 8 a.m this morning but they're closed to for the rest of the day so sometimes it's unpredictable and uh, it can happen pretty quickly yeah, and again, the uh, the severity of the weather, direction it's blown, will influence all of these decisions. So I just hope that the ability for the crews to safely allow people to pass uh, tomorrow morning, Sunday morning from 8 to noon, that's a step in the right direction. But I really don't know who can do what else about this particular fire and how it impacts travel up and down the Canary Peninsula. No, we just hope for the best, Patty. And again, I'd just like to say to everybody, take care. I listen to all the uh, announcements that's coming out by, uh, by the forestry crews. You know, every every four or five hours they do put announcements out. So they got their websites. So take a listen to that. Adhere to all the, uh, you know, the warnings and, and, uh, and notices that's coming out. And uh, please be careful and, uh, and, uh, and stay safe. Absolutely. Thanks for your time, Sonny Playman. 
Thank you. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Look, I, I get it that it's been a real chore for those who are cut off, whether it be stuck on one side of the fire or the other. Don't really know what can or should be done about it. I know you mentioned the Exploits Motel and they're doing all they can and people are out there trying to help. And I'm sure, you know, some people may indeed have family or friends in Grand Falls or in Gander that they can stay with if they're cut off for long periods of time. Community groups, I'm sure, are more than happy to try to get involved to help folks out. But, yeah, it's a tricky piece of business when Mother Nature, Mother Nature is a, a force du jour. Is that how you say that? Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> man, I'm brain dead here this morning. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? Let's get it going. There's another hour left in open line. You know you want to be part of it. Let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. And welcome back. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the mayor of Riverhead, St. Mary's Bay. That's Sheila Lee. Mayor Lee, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good to you. Just wanted to take a couple of minutes today to uh, to offer uh, our congratulations uh, on a on a special occasion. Um, you probably have visited John Givens' store in St Mary's when you've been passing by. Now, John. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, John's John's business goes back to his great grandfather. It was started in the late 1800s, and is that going down to four de- four generations. John himself now, I think, is probably 70-plus, <laughs> and he's still going strong. And, uh, and, and it's a great example of a business that has, that has uh, stood the test of time and a very, a very um, well-rounded business that, as the expression goes, had everything from, a, from a, an anchor to a, what is it, a, this is an expression there, like from a needle to an anchor, so to speak, um, was, has been always there for people, uh, has, has offered excellent uh, services. Like when you go there, you feel so welcomed and, and very, so very helpful. If there's something that's not in the store and you mention it to John, he's out to St. John's probably the next day and make sure that it's, that it's there when you go back. And very courteous, you know, always there to, uh, to help people, for example, if they need a help to bring their groceries to the car or whatever. Loves to have a little chat. It's been a little gathering place, too, where people gather sometimes while they're shopping to have a little chat. And in in rural, rural Newfoundland now, where you know you see so much uh, negativity and so many things that are on the decline, it's it's encouraging and it's uh, it's good to see that we have a business that's still thriving. And um, I, I felt today they're offering a day now. They're having celebrations down there. They're having music. They're having hot dogs uh, and food, and they're having prizes. And re- they even took taken five cents after gas and diesel today. I want to press and prices as a special appreciation to the customers. So uh, I, I couldn't let today go uh, without, uh, on behalf of all of us, our whole region. I'm sure I'll say this: our whole region and beyond, to congratulate the givens. Uh, for the for the business that started so long ago and the business that was continuous continued to build and grow and is so vibrant up to today and uh, so uh, that's basically all I have to say but I just want to say to John um, you know congratulations um, stay healthy 
and hopefully uh, this business will be able to continue on through the Gibbons family for many years to come. I mean, the Gibbons is a massive name in the region. They've been involved in all kinds of business, for sure. I've had a spin in Donnie's uh, water car one time, <laughs> which was a bit of fun as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, these businesses, you know, it's one thing to talk about how long they've been in operation, but that's through thick and thin, because it's not always the good times, right? It's difficult no. to run a business at the very best of times, even when business is brisk, there's no rest for the weary and it takes real commitment to community and to be you know what I've my favorite part about some of these locally owned and operated business it's not just about supporting the locals but that's where you usually get the best in the way of customer service and treatment is because everybody knows everybody and they know that their upside is if they get you as a repeat customer because let's say I bought a stereo and I had a problem with it I got great customer service next time I need a piece of electronics I'm going back to that local store versus what seems to be a bit of the colder nature of some of the bigger boxes. Yes, and you know, when we had COVID, of course, as you know, there were so many businesses that, that well, all businesses struggled. Uh, some businesses didn't make it. Some probably still won't make it. But these stores, well, of course, we have another great store too in our area. These stores kept their doors open and they were there and smiling. And uh, and even when we had the, the blackout a few years back where the power went, I think, for two days or something, John was so preactive that he had a generator and the store still continued continues to go on even though nobody could get anything anywhere but you could still go to his store so and they're good community people they're there like they're really there you know for their community and and show interest in their community and support their community and 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 support each other in times of, of hardship i mean as you probably may know uh, mr givens uh, lost his darling grandson recently tra and tragically uh which all our hearts are bleeding for but um but th this is what helps helps everyone is that when people really care about each other and are there for each other and I think they saw that when this terrible tragedy happened so I just wish him good health I know he spent too long in his store but uh, I, I don't know what he'd do without his store I suppose but I certainly wish him good health and may his business continue to thrive. Absolutely. I echo those sentiments as well, and I appreciate you making time for the show, and I'm sure the family appreciates your kind words. Well, I hope so, because it's important sometimes, you know, but sometimes you don't take time enough to be able to, to, to talk and discuss and speak out and share positive stories, because, you know, m many stories today are all about negativity of one type or another, but when you have a good news story, I think it needs to be shouted out loud and clear. Absolutely right. Uh, good to have you on, Sheila. Okay, dear. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, I, I suppose I should say Mayor Lee, of course. I've known Sheila Lee, Mayor Lee, for a long time. Okay, she mentioned the power outage there a few years ago, the whole concept, uh, the issue of dark NL, which was awful. I don't know what's been put in place to deal with the prospects of some real prolonged outages if and when there's a problem with the power that comes from Muskrat Falls. Look, we already know that the glitchy software has led to real schedule problems, obviously, with the project itself. And there's, I mean, the 1,100 kilometers of transmission line coming down, say, for instance, through the Long Range Mountains. One of the consulting companies that has presented to the PUB, Liberty Consulting, has spoken about this directly. They say the possibility of outages to be uh, repairs, pardon me, if there's something happens in the rugged terrain in the Long Range Mountains, we could see prolonged outages of blackouts or rolling brownouts 
upwards of 45 days. Like, how can that possibly be? So you lend that to the conversation about the potential to decommission Holyrood and the thermal generating station out there. Is that ever going away? Remember, one of the issues surrounding the proponents of the project immediately uh, when they first announced it was, number one, Quebec is the boogeyman, and number two, have to get rid of Holyrood. Okay. Now, we already know that Holyrood has had some more work done in the recent past, and Jennifer Williams, the CEO of Nalcor, has told us they are officially extending the life of Holyrood for, I think it was till minimum of 2025. Yeah, but beyond 2025, is there actually a plan to decommission Holyrood? If so, what does that mean for backup power when and if we have a problem with transmission from Muskrat Falls? Nobody really knows. Nobody's really answered that. At the moment, with all of the generating sources that are in play, whether it be Bay Despair and Hardwoods and uh, Churchill Falls and Holyrood, we've got lots of power. Well, there's no need for any more power generation. But if there's a reliance on the 846, is it 846 megawatts at Churchill, at uh, Muskrat Falls, and the commitment that we already have to our partners on the mainland, Amera Nova Scotia Power, they get like 20, 22% of the power up front. That's to repay their $1.5 billion that they spent on time, on schedule, on budget for the uh, building of the maritime link. So with that power, can we even decommission Holyrood in full? And if so, there's a lot of power comes from that station, and the majority of consumers are on this side of the island. Just That's just the factual ba- background of the numbers. Is So does that mean we're going to see 100 megawatt twin combined cycle turbines installed or something along those lines? Because, I mean, there's no way. There could be no plan in place for if and when we have blackouts or rolling brownouts for upwards of 45 days. That's not my assertion. That's Liberty Consulting, who have done some pretty good work and spoken to a lot of issues surrounding uh, Muskrat Falls and some of the pitfalls that we have to keep an eye for. So anyway, if you know more about it than I do, which you probably do, you can join us on the program. Let's see what's shaking on the Twitter box. Wherever you go, see up online. You can follow us there. Our email address is openlinefioc.com, but my favorite is when you join us live on the air to talk about a subject of importance to you. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Bruno, you're on the air. Hi, Hi, Patty. Nice talking to you. Always a pleasure. Yes. It's quite interesting, the discussions that you've been having lately around... uh, wind energy and uh, the failings of Muskrat Falls, I couldn't resist but to uh, pick it up uh, on some of the things that you've been saying. Um, If that software uh, doesn't end up working properly, uh, no part of that 849, mythical 849 megawatts is going to be available anywhere, either on the Avalon or in Nova Scotia to meet your commitments. So there's a very real possibility that Muskrat Falls would then become a stranded asset and the implications of that, both financial and in terms of the supply of energy, are staggering. I'm glad you're interested in uh, finally in Wind energy, uh, interesting to hear that gentleman say that you've got the 
best wind regime in the country and the lowest penetration of any province in the country of wind energy, uh, which just speaks to the inefficiency uh, at best of the energy planning in the province. Just a couple of quick, uh, quick comments. Uh, some power has flowed across the Labrador Island link, but unless it can be maximized, then we are hooped. It would be akin to the water management agreement going against us. So it, if it, they don't get it right, stranded asset is what it becomes, Bruno. You're 100% right. So well, what then? Uh, and isn't it time to hedge against that possibility given how problematic uh, the whole thing has been. There's no uh, indication that the generators themselves are going to work on a consistent basis. And uh, the 1,100 kilometers um, is going to be horrendously difficult in the winters uh, with the extreme weather that we're having. And, And your own consultants have pointed that out. So you can't ever look at Muskrat Falls as a reliable energy generator. And how do you prepare for that as a province? seems to me that that wind energy offshore and a a rapid investment in it, because it's not that expensive, because you can do it as a module, uh, one windmill at a time. The incremental cost uh, is not all that much, and it's time to begin thinking about that. The, the, I, I get that, Bruno. I think most of the wind energy projects that will be proposed here won't be for feeding back to the grid. They will be for this export opportunity in green hydrogen. The, just let me say this. So let's just say wind onshore, wind offshore, wherever they set up a wind farm. If indeed, because we're all ta- talking hypotheticals now, whether it be the prolonged blackouts or rolling brownouts and the Labrador Island Link and Long Range Mountain, Soldiers Farm, at this moment in time, we still don't know what the future is going to hold exactly. If they can figure out the Labrador Island Link, and I know it's a big if, if you build a wind farm, that power we don't need, if Muskrat is working as intended, then at some point, that might be just turbine spinning, generating power that no one's using. and no. So is that something that makes the sense that you're speaking to this morning? Because, you know, any, any additional power to the grid that is not going to be consumed is going to be a, another bill footed by me. It's also going to have an impact on my rates. So I just don't know about that particular approach to backup. You're absolutely right if uh, if all of your assumptions are, are correct. I said if. I'm but not assuming if, anything. If, if the software uh, p- continues to present problems, if the 1,100 kilometers in the long, of the long-range mountains on an ongoing basis cause uh, long outages, if the synchronous condensers that still haven't proved their efficacy in fact, have to be rebuilt, and the costs of that and the time that that will take, uh, it's time that we have to look at the real possibility that it is a stranded asset and that the likelihood of uh, needing to do something else is the best possibility, the only sensible possibility that you have left. You have to chalk up Muskrat Falls and all of the tragedies that uh, follow from it as uh, a monument to political corruption in your province. And let's uh, 
you know, it, it, at this point, you can't say that it had anything to do with sensible energy planning. All of the flaws have been massively exposed. Uh, your obligations are massive, and it looks like they can't be met with the current system. Muskrat Falls is going to keep breaking down, those long-range mountains and all the rest of it. So let's forget about it, and let's realize that we need to get some real energy planning and quickly into your province, or you will have people starving in the dark very soon. Now, I, I get the the partial fallacy behind sunken cost, but how can we possibly turn our back on it in full at this point? Like, I mean, because I, I got to pay the bill. No matter what happens, TD and Goldman Sachs and all the rest of them that loan us the money, they're going to want their payments. They don't give two hoots whether or not we ever flip the switch. They want their money back, and we're already having to start to pay the money back. So how can we just abandon it in full, start from scratch with another form of energy, because and pay for it on top? Because they want the money, Bruno, and you know it as well as I do. I know they do, but it's cheaper than throwing more money at it over and over and over again and that's what you're facing right now and you got to admit it that's what uh, declaring it a sunk cost is all about uh, scrap falls and all of it the transmission system the synchronous condenser and all the rest of it isn't going to work we've got to admit that and move on because it's that's the cheapest solution or alternative that we're now facing You've got the best wind regime in the world. Exploit it. I, I, I don't understand when you've got a solution that's there. Most people that were that are in a horrendous situation, Manitoba, for instance, and Alberta, that are going ahead and making horrendous decisions around uh, dams and electrical power, uh, won't have the luxury of the wind to fall back on when they finally have to admit that theirs is a, a monstrous failure as well. Muskrat Falls is a sunk cost. And I know it's hard to swallow, but swallow it is exactly what needs to be done. And you've had sensible analysis done by people that have suggested that from your own uh, consumer advocate to some of your uh, cons consultants if you read between the lines and what they're saying. Well, I don't think the Consumer Advocate has ever suggested that we just pretend that Muskrat is now of no value, no use, will never generate a gig of power, and we just say forget it, It's and it's a, a stranded asset. Because regardless of what people think about the project, from the onset right through today and all the problems that continue to plague the project, we have to pay the bill. That's it. I mean, it doesn't matter what anyone thinks about the project. It really doesn't matter at all. We have to pay that bill. Yeah. So un until people factor that in, then I, I don't know but how else we can talk about backup and, you know, reliability and the Liberty Consulting Report and the Long Range Mountains or the Labrador Island. All of those things are part of the conversation, but the ultimate conversation is i got to pay that bill. Yeah, you do, but unless you can get all of those pieces working together consistently... Uh, you're going to end up owing more money than you own now. So, you know, what then? And when do you, when are you going to have someone with the vision to say, time to blow the whistle and to start again with a system that'll work? Uh, again, I'm not so sure how to say anything in addition to the and fact I'm that. Not a 
And I'm not a fan of that to green hydrogen, by the way. I think that's uh, whistling in the wind, to, to be honest with you. Well, it doesn't really matter if it's not for my use here. Like, for instance, if John Resley can sign a power purchase agreement for the home for his hydrogen in Germany, what difference does it make what you or I think about it? If someone wants to buy it, then someone wants to buy it. Yeah, that's true. But, uh, yeah, we'll see. Well, one thing, whether or not people like or loathe John Risley or anybody else involved in any of these projects, he's no fool. He's, if he doesn't have a home for the power, he won't put up a turbine, right? If, if there's any tax dollars involved, then we should be very hesitant about any of these projects because we've got a terrible track record. But if Risley invests all of his own private capital with who and whoever his partners are, and the project comes up lame, and they can't sell their, their product, being green hydrogen in this case, well, that's on them, right? Yeah. Okay. But I'm I'm skeptical. Uh, I'm, uh, uh, given the history, I'm pretty skeptical that that'll ever come to pass. That uh, you there won't be any provincial money in it, and that the green hydrogen will ever make any sense. Well, they're, if, uh, they're already using it. You know, countries in the EU have said quite clearly that they're using it, and they're looking for more. Uh, more companies to deliver them green hydrogen so again i don't know much about it and the utilization of but if someone wants to buy it suppose they want to buy a widget or a doodad or green green hydrogen or whatever if someone wants to spend money to buy it then fair enough you know it's not about whether or not i think it's great technology or any of that kind of stuff because again it's just about if they're playing with their own money uh i agree with you there's no issue but i just doubt that uh, that he can do it successfully, but that, as you point out, that if it's his money, it's his money and it's his business. Um, I've been mostly wanting to talk to you lately about uh, the state of the world and the, uh, the <laughs> North America going up in flames uh, and uh, flooding uh, six months later. Um, British Columbia, in particular, has been having a heck of a time. Oh, man, that fire around Penticton is unbelievable. I know. Yeah. And Australia, in 2019, they call the Black Summer because uh, so much of Australia just burned. uh, And it's happening to more and more of California. It's becoming an annual event now, the fires, one year after the best, uh, uh, after the next. Uh, your namesake uh, paradise two years ago got wiped off the map in California. Yeah, Lake Mead is dry. The reservoir is dry. I mean, there's, I know. there's lots of things yeah. to point to. And Bruno, this is just got to be the way it is at 11.32 on the dot and 12 minutes plus of our conversation. I just have to go. I'll give you another couple of minutes to wrap it up, but I'm not getting in a tete a tete about the goodbye today. So go ahead. Well, yeah, I've, I've appreciated the opportunity uh, to uh, discuss the issues. And, uh, you know, it really is frightening. Ouch. Uh, the runaway state of uh, the, the whole globe. No one expected, not even the most uh, dire uh, environmentalist, that it would happen as quickly as it seems to be happening now. No one would have believed that one of the star environmentalists in the country 
would turn out to be uh, one of the biggest environmental traders in the country that's uh, sniffing around, opening up uh, new fields offshore uh, and being open to suggestions of new energy production now. Uh, I wouldn't have believed it if you told me that a couple of years ago. But we've got an environment minister. uh, Beware, he's a traitor to his ideals. And that's not going to change in oh, the future. You're, you're talking about Stephen Gibo. Okay, I didn't know who you were talking about. Uh, yeah. off, off I go, Bruno, but uh, have yourself a nice weekend. All right, you too. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, that wasn't too bad. <laughs> Let's go ahead and take a break for the news. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the mayor of Stephenville. That's Tom Rose. Mayor Rose, you're on the air. Hey, Mr. Patty Daly. Happy Friday to you, sir. The very same to you. Thank you. How's your morning going? Rolling along, uh, trucking towards 12 noon, which is a good thing. Now, I did indeed speak to uh, your town off the top of the program this morning. You know, everyone is hopeful, and I'm sure nobody more hopeful than you that all of the plans proposed by the Diamond Group come to fruition. There was some reference to the fact that the government has been backstopping a $900,000 line of credit for the Stephenville Airport Corporation. When that relationship is over and that bill is paid, that support goes away. I guess that's in some form thin reference to what if things go sideways with Diamond? Well, basically, in the terms of the sale uh, with the airport authority, uh, Mr. Carl Diamond had to uh, take care of all the debt associated with the airport, and the airport was in some debt. Uh, obviously, uh, they had a uh, $900,000 line of credit that was guaranteed by the provincial government, and that was done on an annual basis. But one of the uh, terms of the sale was they had to pay off that line of credit, which uh, the airport was kind of maxing out the line of credit for to keep operations moving forward and being in compliance with all Transport Canada regulations. So that's one of the terms. Uh, actually, I got a little update this morning that's saying that any day now the uh, transfer of funds should take place. Uh, once that happens, uh, the legal team for both sides uh, – ensure that uh, bills are paid and uh, and and basically the transfer of deed will happen so we're in the last it's almost like you, you, you bought a house but when does it close you know it, it takes a little bit of time and and this is August too actually our legal team uh, the lawyer handling it was on holidays this week but he's back in the office Monday so that's a good thing so we're meeting this uh, upcoming uh, week uh, and with the board to get a further update. So I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic, Patty. I'm remaining optimistic. I don't have a reason as of yet to think that it's not. I mean, we had Carl Diamond on the show. We could only ask him the questions that everybody wanted answers to. Yeah. And if it happens, terrific. I mean, because talk about a shot in the arm. A couple of hundred million dollars of investment, reinvigorated airport, work towards more passenger traffic, the cargo drones, the employment it will create, and the fire hall. And like, I mean, if it happens, it's going to be tremendous. You know, taxpayers had to underwrite this airport, and and myself and council and the, the citizens and the taxpayers, you know, we're very hopeful. We're very happy that we're at this picture that a sale is uh, approved, and it's just the paperwork and the transfer of funds, and it's done. But, you know, it's it's really also good timing uh, for Carl Diamond. He has a vision for drones, which is it's, it's the new advent of aerospace, drones, satellites, 
the jet age. And, you know, maybe these drones might burn green hydrogen down the road that we're going to produce here in Stephenville. So it's all starting to line up, come together. This is a, a community that's uh, rich in infrastructure. And because of that, because of that infrastructure, you know, we'll get investment here. Well, I mean, economic activity drives more economic activity. It's the way it's always been. If there's more and more to economies of scale in your region, in and around Stephenville, it will spur more and more business, whether it be to keep up consumer demand for even food and goods and stuffs. I mean, it's just how the world works. So this would just be the beginning of a resurgence, not just a one-off. This has impact and trickle-down economics, or pardon me, that's not the right word. The multiplier effect in economics will absolutely be part of it. Yeah, and you know, uh, I'm, I was listening to your comments with your previous caller, and you talked about, you know, what's happening in the world with the, the environment and global warming, and, and the unemployment rate in Newfoundland right now. So just think about it. Well, we're we're going to have an aerospace Carl Diamond deal, open deal, the deal with John Risley, and that hydrogen deal will be the single biggest corporate private sector investment in the. Yeah, we're losing you, Maros. Uh, yeah. So anyway, I think you want to make a comment on the price of gas as well before we say goodbye this morning? Yeah, actually, there's no That's when the producers of this uh, product that's so in demand, it's needed by everybody in the world. Oil pricing, supply and demand, and it's at a very high, high intergovernmental, high stake business uh, purview. And uh, they control it, but uh, it slows down some of the economy, no doubt, uh, for people that have a hard time filling up a tank for 200 or $230. But uh, we're seeing a lot of activity in Steamboat this summer with tourists, and uh, and Steamboat's getting real busy, and I think that's part of the great work with Come Home Year. Hopefully it's working out. We see the tourism numbers are extremely strong uh, across the province, and that's yeah. a good thing for an industry. Hospitality and tourism really needed a shot in the arm. Looks like they're getting one. Yeah, and, you know, and that's the thing, too. Uh, you know, we've been penned up for so long with COVID that the price of fuel has gone up. Yeah, we're sucking that up, Princess, you know what I mean? Because we want to go. We want to see the province. We want to maybe see other parts of Canada. And, you know, I think that's playing a critical role. But it's a great summer. We're having a great summer of weather. We're doing a lot of events for Come Home here in Stephenville. And I'm just really about our future and the aspects of we're heading as we close out this year. 2023 will bring us. I appreciate the time this morning, Mayor. Thank you, sir. Okay. Take good care. Bye-bye. Apologize for the unreliable connection there. But anyway, uh, let's take our final break of the morning and the week. When we come back, still a bit of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Uh, Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Say good morning to the independent member of the House serving the folks of Humber Bay of Islands. That's Eddie Joyce. Good morning, Eddie. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you again for taking my call. Happy to do it. Very quickly before we get into what you called about, I just curiously... Minutes before I replied to this uh, person's uh, uh, email, then I see your name pop up on my screen. It wants me to ask you if I had a chance about the submission of your financial disclosures, you know, all the racket between yourself and the commissioner and the back and forth. I seem to remember the you have indeed, there was a timeline issue concern, but all your submissions are now filed, right? 
Um, not only were they all filed, it was proven that I didn't own a company. Okay. <laughs> They're all filed. Yes, everything was filed, by the way. I did file that back in uh, November uh, 2021. Uh, so it was filed uh, back in November 2021. I have all the documentation, and it came back, said I owned a company, which we didn't. So it's all all done because sometimes, uh, Patty, you got to stick to your principles. And, uh, of course, uh, I, I won't get into it now, but the uh, the history of myself and uh, and the Commission for Legislative Standards has proven me right uh, that uh, that when you you need to stick to your uh, need to stick to your principles. I stuck to my principles, and I'm looking forward to uh, for that the copy of that report that's going to come out by uh, Citizens Rep. Yeah, and we'll all have a look at it yeah. when it does come to pass, okay? You called about something else. Uh, Petty, I, I called about, uh, again, Route 450 out near Copper Mine Brook, the road. Uh, I called um, a few weeks ago uh, when Linda was there. This is a road that dropped. Uh, it's a highway, Route 450, goes to York Harbor, Lark Harbor. It's after dropping 15 inches since uh, March, and, and this happened probably in April when it was sliding down. I, I spoke to the minister in May about it. He's going to look into it. I asked a question in the house. I even gave him the question because I didn't want to embarrass him. I just wanted it done. It's right now, um, it's, um, tour buses won't go out there. Some will, some won't. Uh, there's a lot of uh, people who uh, got cars, hit the bottoms of the cars. Uh, for some reason, uh, this minister, the premier's well aware of it. I wrote the premier. I wrote the minister uh, since then at least 10, 15 times. The town councils of York Harbor and Lark Harbor have wrote them at least seven or eight each. They have yet to receive a response. This is a dangerous situation. There's cars hitting the bottom. I spoke to a person who went on a motorcycle who almost lost control. There's two signs up. The speed limit is reduced to 30. I, they won't even put up a sign, danger sign, bump ahead. It won't even put that up. It like a, it's a neglected duty of the minister. It's actually neglect of his duty. And I'm warning him, I warned him before, if someone gets hurt, it's on him. He's well aware of it. Uh, and there's a, there's a need for a long-term fix. But what the people are asking for, what I'm asking for, the towns of York Harbor and Lark Harbor, is level this off and make it, make it gravel. At least it's safe. And, and I spoke to a few contractors in the area. They said it would take three or four hours to do it. That's it. Three or four hours. A couple loads of class A on top of it, put a grader. They'll have it, they have a level, they have it safe. But this department and the minister refuses to do it. The premier's aware of it. He refuses. This is this is just unbelievable. A, a, a highway in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador for five months with a 15-inch drop Oil tanks won't even fill up to bring out oil because if they go on the side. Tour buses, some tour buses will not go over. People will not travel the roads. The complaints that you hear when people go down to the parks are unbelievable. They're saying this road got to be fixed. If we had known this, we wouldn't have came out. People in Bayfest, they, they just had a, a, a event out in New York Harbor. A lot of people up to Kerning, Bettiscote, wouldn't go because of the road. they got to come back over to nighttime. You actually got to cross over. On the left, there's about a foot opening there. And that's where you got to try to pass the road. I got an email back from a senior bureaucrat, and, and like it's amazing. What he put in his email, I won't name the person, but he put in his email is the speed limit, they can navigate through the, the road. Navigate. A highway in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador is shameful. 
I refuse to give up because someone's going to get hurt, and I'm I'm going to continue to fight on behalf of the people in um, in Lark Harbor and York Harbor and anybody else the tourists want to go out. And I call upon the minister and the premier today. Do an honorable thing. Spend ten or fifteen thousand dollars and fix this portion of the road. Fair enough. I, I, you know, the same reaction all the time from different pockets of the province. You want that fixed? And fair enough, a 15-inch drop is worth fixing right away. Someone will inevitably send me an email with another picture from the road to Lassie. Someone will send me a picture of uh, uh, the road to Terranova. Someone else will send me a picture of the road to Harbour Brighton. So there's no end to the deplorable road conditions that need to be attended to. And I don't dispute your need right for one single second. A 15-inch uh, drop is completely unmanageable for 99% of the vehicles on the road. But uh, Petty, and I understand, uh, like going out, there are there are potholes there, and and I understand. And I spoke to the guys from the department here in, here in Western, like they had seven thaws this year, and that's going to cause a lot of that. Uh, potholes and, and some some you may have conveniences run over the road is one thing, but when you have a safety concern, when you have people, when you're up on that 15 inch drop hitting the bottom of your car, you have people coming in going out on more motorcycles and all you got is a 30 kilometer sign don't realize how bad it is this this is not a, a inconvenience this is a safety issue I'm, and you're not asking okay let's pave 10 kilometers let's get this done you're asking to spend spend money and the contractor said it would take three to four hours to go with a, with a, with, with a backhoe level it off, put a grade around, put a couple loads of Class A, and you'll have it fixed temporary until the long-term fix. That's not much to ask. This is not filling in potholes. This is a safety issue. The minister is aware of it. I wrote him. I asked him questions. I spoke to him personally on it, and he just won't do it. He just won't do it for some reason. But then I'm not complaining about other people who are getting pavement work. I understand the politics of it. I understand the needs of it. But when you got a safety issue, I can't let it drop until that safety issue is fixed on behalf of the people that I've ever sent. Appreciate the time this morning, Eddie. Thanks a lot. Uh, Petty, thank you very much. Take care. Okay, bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, last word this morning goes to line number one, City Councillor Sandy Hickman, who's the lead on Public Works. Good morning, Sandy. You're on the air. Hi there, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. I know it's getting close to news time. It was just want to congratulate Ricada Committee on what an unbelievable show yesterday and all the vendors and, of course, the crews and coxswains and coaches. Jeepers, that was one of the best regattas in living memory, I would think. Weather certainly helped, too. Oh, absolutely. When the weather cooperates, there's nothing quite like it. I was, I've made my stroll down for the championship races, and it's just the feel-good, man. Not everyone loves the regatta, so be it. And we're not here to please everybody because that's impossible. But for those who loved it, had a great day. Absolutely. It is iconic, and it is a big part of St. John's. But just to quickly uh, thank people for calling in and talking about the cleanup. Every year, I'm totally amazed by how quickly that is done, and I want to thank all the staff down the city, led by uh, Brian Head and Mike Adam, but all the, the men and women that, that did that work. They started uh, last evening, 40 staff overnight. Um, that was pretty well done by this morning. And, of course, the vendors were very good at cleaning up as much as they could around their sites. So there was dumpsters and garbage cans around, and uh, we used, uh, oh, what did we use? There was street sweepers and small mechanical sweepers, but, you know, mostly manual labor. Just That's a lot of work. So I really wanted to commend uh, the staff of the city of St. John's for all the great work they do. Is there a recycling component to the cleanup? Uh, I wouldn't say there's no component to it, but it's 
it picks up as you go along and separated, yeah. Okay. But uh, you don't find as many recyclables around as you do with the tickets from the draws and, and just other other things that happen to drop. You know, it, it, people are pretty good. There's garbage cans around and staff are emptying them throughout the day yesterday. It, you know, it is bad, but it, it, it's certainly not as bad. It's, it's not 100% everything hitting the floor, hitting the ground. I must say people uh, do take care of their, 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 their pond and their city. But there, obviously there's some vicarious uh, garbage that lies around, and the tickets are the big culprit, yeah, actually. no doubt. Uh, very quickly, before we run out of time, how can we? How come we can't do the same job, for instance, on George Street? Someone sent me a picture from the aftermath, the morning after the last concert. It was up to your neck, and we know that's one of the tourist draws, for, for starters, oh, let alone geez. the locals. So why can't we do the same kind of job on George? It is uh, very complicated and a huge job. There's no question about that. There is a contract with a company that goes in there at, I think it's 4 or 5 in the morning, and they go hard. They start basically at George and go hard through downtown. I don't think it's good enough. I agree. I think we need to put more resources into it. That's the problem. It's a resource issue, and there's always little pockets left over and lying around, and we have received complaints, no question about it. I think we need to do better, and uh, I'll keep fighting for that myself, and I hope that uh, downtown development pitches in and, and helps us with this. But uh, the company that's doing it are doing their best, but it's pretty tough with uh, three or four people, I think, to get it done as quick as we'd like to see. Fair enough. I wish we had more time because there's endless yeah. questions and comments about public yeah. works, but I appreciate this. Maybe we'll pick it up again next week or when you have time. Anytime, sir. Thank you. Thanks, Andy. All the best. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Sandy Hickman, town, a city councillor and, of course, the lead on public works. Whew. Good show today. Good week. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program. And, yes, we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. We'll talk Monday. Bye-bye.